hit it. You're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. The view from our side of the cockpit door. WAPG. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy episode 520. Yeah, he's up in the sky. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Hello. You're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show, the view from our side of the cockpit door, with your host, Captain Jeff, broadcasting live from Studio 1A at APG headquarters in Lake Burton, Georgia. Today's show is recorded on the 5th of May, 2022. Yeah, he's up in the sky. It's the airline pilot guy. Put your and he's flying by. With the airline pilot guy. In today's episode, an apparently caused the crash of an Egypt air flight, control problems for an Air France jet while trying to land, more news, your feedback, and today's plane tale, Captain Anderson, the crash. So get all settled in. Tray tables, seatbacks in the upright and locked positions, electronic devices powered on. I'm Radio Roger, and Flight 520 is ready for pushback. Thank you, Radio Roger. He's an award-winning TV and radio reporter. Currently at the number one all-new station in the nation, 1010 wins in New York City. Welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. It's an aviation podcast covering the latest in aviation and answering your great feedback. I'm Captain Jeff, a pilot at a major legacy airline based in Atlanta, Georgia. And joining us today, what a treat, from his home studio in the Valley of the Sun, world traveler, airplane mechanic, Brightling Cognoscenti, fitness hound, and international air freight captain, it's Miami Rick. Hey, everybody. It's Miami Rick. First of all, I'd like to apologize for the crummy audio. I had uh, mic issues. And, uh, but hey, happy to see you tomorrow. Could be another great one. Happy to be here. Excellent. And also joining us from across the pond. In Hartford, Hereford, and Hampshire. Professional photographer, former RAF, RAAF fire, fighter pilot, retired Airbus A330, A340 captain for Virgin Atlantic Airways. It's Captain Nick. Yeah, good evening, everybody. Lovely to be back on the show. And uh, despite Brexit, Belgian IPA. Cheers. Cheers. And also joining us from her studio in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. (laughs) Retired financier, aviation enthusiast, spreadsheet master, and our producer director, it's Liz Piper. Good day, everyone. And I am drinking a California Cabernet Sauvignon. Oh, very, very Good nice. You. <laughs> you just bring the standard way up, Liz. Absolutely. She <laughs> always does, regardless of what she's drinking. Mm-hmm. And uh, <laughs> also, you uh, mentioned, um, Rick, that uh, it's the uh, 5th of May, Cinco de Mayo. I did, I did, I did, around the Mexican head. I did, I did, I did. And that's the end of that. Or is it I get something singing? My cell phone appears to be ringing. <laughs> yes, a little bit of Homer Simpson there. I'm sure that'll be a copyright strike. Thank you, Google. Um, and uh, let's see. Tortilla chip. We're celebrating. All right. <laughs> All right. Let's uh, roll that down. <laughs> See what a way to start a show. 
Absolutely. Cheers, Liz. Cheers, Liz. See you later. See, Cheers. You should be wearing you wearing that sombrero made out of chips and uh, with a oh. walk rather than you know on the rim and the uh, in the rim of the, uh, of the of the sombrero and just next you know? year next year there you <laughs> okay go. Yeah. i'm making notes wait. of that i'll take notes <laughs> okay all right let's do some news Stand by for news. All right, let's start off with this first news item. Everyone, three nine three zero four. Be careful on your base legs. Got a complaint that you spilled over and got really close to the aircraft on the other runway. All right, one zero right, clear for the option. One zero right, clear for the option. We overshot maybe about twenty feet. That's twenty feet too many. Twenty feet. No, twenty feet. haven't got to the edge of the runway yet. Yeah, it's twenty feet too many. You're not supposed to overshoot. Well, I didn't say I left the runway. I just said the center line. Still, you overshot it. Yeah, that's fine. Everybody does. But that's okay. We corrected that we were far away from the other plane. I don't think the other plane was in any danger. Well, he complained about it. So in his purview, he was. So make sure you don't overshoot on your base legs. Roger, maybe he shouldn't be overshooting also so he doesn't get close to us. Okay, stop arguing about a complaint, sir. You're always so defensive about the call. Yes, I'm with you with what you say, but when I haven't even, not me, but I'm, I'm watching what the student doing. And when he has not exceeded Mike, he did not overshoot Mike. He did overshoot the runway for the other aircraft, and I witnessed it as well. And you see, to always be super defensive whenever any complaint is lodged against you. Stop! Well, there's no complaint. I'm complaining about him now. Go ahead and tell him that he should not overshoot the runway. Are you going to do that? November 1393, make a full stop taxi back on this fast. Let's do a full stop taxi back. That's not a problem. When you call him an overshoot, when the guy overshoots, you should let him know also. I did not complain about it, but now I'm complaining. Can you please tell him that? Sure, I will. Please. <laughs> November 46, Bravo, Ray 10 left, clear for the option. The other aircraft is complaining about your original complaint, <laughs> so don't overshoot the runway. This is not good. Just I'm going to show you where we were on flight. We were right about here. He opened my student shot, overshot over oh, here. No, no, and I brought it back. That is not correct, <laughs> sir. I witnessed it out the window. That was way more than that. Okay, if you have the the uh, if you have your uh, radar, pull the radar. You see exactly what I'm saying. Uh, yes, sir. And I know what I saw. You were more than that. You're incorrect. Okay, let me go try I think and do I'm it correct, again. because I was looking at him doing the work. We're going around. No, well, you think you're correct, but you're not. You're wrong. <laughs> well, I witnessed it also. I wasn't flying, but I witnessed it. That, uh, my student did not overshoot the taxiway. Your student absolutely shot the runway, and there is no more on this topic. Maintain radio silence unless it's ATC-related. No, I don't have to maintain radio silence. That's number one. And number two, I don't think you should call something like this when you say you saw it, then I want to look at the radar uh, print. You absolutely need to maintain radio silence if it's not ATC-related. You don't have obstruction to your traffic control. Otherwise, we can file some paperwork. November 7-6, Gulf. Uh, 
continue for about half a mile, I'll call your base. 7-6, Alpha, Roger, we're just finishing up our course. Uh, 19, from you, transmitting to me at the upwind, what did you say? Sir, <laughs> one three nine three uniform, extend downwind. Everybody's out to get them. I downwind, but on the upwind and the go around, I think I heard you saying something. November, one three nine three uniform, extend downwind, that is all. Yeah, <laughs> extend, it is all. November, one three nine three uniform, right, one zero right, third line, pulls up, taxi back. Uh, 19, if I would like to have the option if we can. Pulls up, taxi back, due to, uh... No option you. for you. Due to me? Due to you. No, this is no such thing. Yes, sir. <laughs> I, I, just, I differ with you, sir, and I think we need the option. <laughs> Number 1393, full stop, taxi back. What's the reason? You said because of me. That is no reason. You got no reason there. <laughs> I need relief. Okay. Who's at the frequency? Uh, is this the tower talking, actually? <laughs> yes, sir, this is the tower. Who's this? Transmitting now. And yeah. nice uniform. I would like to pull those tapes when you said you were doing a full stop taxi back uh, due to me because I think that is wrong, wrong clearance altogether. I would like to pull the uh, tapes out. Sir, one three nine three uniform. Don't worry, sir. We're we're gonna settle this once you get on the ground. Okay, we'll do that. There was another transmission also on that tape uh, that it didn't belong to anybody. It wasn't your voice. It was somebody else talking. I would like to know that. Too. <laughs> Uh, and I know who, you know who it is. In November 1319, uniform, possible pilot deviation. I need you to call the tower. You have the phone number? <laughs> no further transmission. Ah! Oh, that shut well, up. Thank the Lord for that. Yeah. Wow. I think I, that is wow. the end of it. Thank goodness for that. Wow. So. A little clue at the very beginning um, that, you know, you, you always think something or rather, or you always take offense or defensive when somebody criticizes you. I'm thinking, okay, we have a little bit of history here, obviously, with that tower controller and that instructor pilot. Wow, that was a mess. And that was, that was unsafe. When, when you start getting upset with somebody, uh, that just, you, you start losing your situational awareness and it can be a really bad thing yeah i feel so sorry for a student jeff yeah. he, oh i know I he's student. having this <laughs> student beside him trying to do the go around and uh flying this damned airplane he's paying how many dollars an hour for this idiot to sit beside him and harangue the air traffic controller but you know what in a way nick he he is he is uh learning exactly what not to do <laughs> yes. yeah True. So long as he realizes that. Yeah. Exactly. Now, I, I saw, right. I saw the, uh, you had the, uh, the the VFR sectional there set North Perry Airport. Is that is that where this happened? Uh, mm. Yeah, and that's actually in the video. I didn't do that. Whoever, uh, it was uh, yeah. Bass Aviation did that. Um, yeah, that is that is not a that's not an area where you want to be messing around because it's a lot of there's a lot of uh, you know high concentration of traffic because you're just to the north of Opelika Airport. Um, the north of, uh, north end of Miami there. You've got Fort Lauderdale International just up the road. You have uh, high-end tennis just to the east of the field there. You have an overpass, I-95. You have all sorts of things going on. Oh, and just up the road, you also have uh, Fort Lauderdale Executive Airport. So there's a lot of things going on there. Um, and to, um, and to you know, just, just take up the frequency like that over something as stupid as your ego 
that's just not the way to go. I mean, so uh, I, I understand we pilots are very type A. We hate being wrong and all this stuff. But, you know, part of part of learning, part of being a pilot is realizing that you never do stop learning until the day you retire. Um, there's always something to learn. There's always something to improve. And there's uh, and, 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 and saying and being able to say and recognize that you were in the wrong in the first place says a lot no, about yourself, not only as a pilot, but as a person and a human being. So, you know, just, just don't be an ass. Right. Yeah. Well said. Well said. Right. Yeah. I mean, what else can you say? Really? I mean, that was just completely inappropriate. And, you know, and the, even the tower, I think probably could have held back a little bit as well, but uh, you could, as I said, there's a history there and they are, you know, they're just not happy with each other. And both of them kind of feel like they got to be right. You know? I agree with Neil. He said, settle it the old fashioned way. The problem is, is that we don't have a lot of, uh, we don't have a lot of saloons in South Florida. And, uh, and, uh, you know, he did say he was going to settle it on the ground though. So I'm thinking fisticuffs probably on the ramp right there. There you go. Well, fair enough. I personally would have positioned a both as gun downwind. Just take (laughs) as he came across. I'd have just taken him out. Yeah, enough of that. That might be a little extreme, uh, Nick. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) anyway. So, hey, boys and girls, that's not the way we behave on the radio. Just suck it up. And admit when you're wrong, and uh, you'll be a much happier person. And life's way too short to get that upset about niff-naff and trivia. Come on. Yeah, I agree. I wonder if the student stayed with that instructor. I don't know. I mean, maybe that (laughs) student already knew that this guy's personality was like this. I don't know. Uh, But if not, I'm sure that uh, they probably requested an instructor change. All right. Let's move to the next news item, and this is from the uh, Aviation Herald. Um, oh, we talked about uh, this a little bit on the last episode, I believe, this uh, um, Air France um, Flight 11. going to, It was either last episode or a recent episode. Two, two ago, it does uh, Going into uh, Paris's Charles de Gaulle Airport on the 5th of April. Airplane did not respond to commands. Of course, that's the headline from the Aviation Herald. And uh, on the 15th of April, the French Bureau d'enquête et d'analyse reported the aircraft was on ILS approach to runway 26 left in manual control when the crew perceived destabilization of the aircraft and initiated a go-around. However, had difficulties maintaining the flight path during the go-around. Both pilots acted simultaneously on the flight controls. Bless you. Uh, once the situation had stabilized, the aircraft returned for a safe landing on runway 27 right. The occurrence category is still undetermined. On the 27th of April, the BEA released a press release describing the investigation update, stating that the first officer was the pilot flying, the captain was the pilot monitoring, the crew performed an ILS approach to runway 26 left, and uh, on final, the airplane was established on the localizer and glide slope ILS beams. At 7.49 local time, the crew were cleared to land. They configured the airplane for landing, The selected speed was 140 knots. The crew then carried out the landing checklist at 7.50, 20. When the airplane was at an altitude of 1,670 feet, the pilot flying continued the approach in manual flight. He disconnected the autopilot, leaving the auto throttle and flight directors activated. He then made inputs on the controls for around 15 seconds. The airplane followed the movement of the controls and stayed on the ILS path. 
the left and right roll being less than two degrees. Uh, in the subsequent 10 seconds, there were fewer inputs on the wheel. The co-pilot then made inputs on the control column and wheel with a greater frequency. The amplitude was still small. The aeroplane followed the commands, the left and right roll being less than three degrees. Again, nothing out of the ordinary, really. At 7.51.06, the co-pilot expressed his astonishment with respect to the airplane's bank angle. The roll inputs were amplified, and the average position of the wheel was around six degrees to the left. The airplane turned left with a small bank angle. The captain voiced his surprise with respect to the deviation from the flight path. At about six seconds later, the airplane was at an altitude of 1,115 feet, banked seven degrees to the left, with the wheel oriented 16 degrees to the left. The crew carried out a go-around. Up until the go-around, the flight path had remained within the operator's stabilization criteria. The recorded parameters show that the two pilots then simultaneously made inputs on the controls. In the following second, the position of the wheel reached a maximum value of 27 degrees to the left. One second later, the roll reached a maximum value of 15 degrees to the left, and the nose-up attitude was 12 degrees. And uh, just a few seconds later, the captain commented that the plane was going left. The control columns were then desynchronized, We'll probably talk about that in a second. For 14 seconds due to opposing forces, the captain held the control column in a slightly nose-down position while the co-pilot made several more pronounced nose-up inputs. Uh, two brief episodes of wheel desynchronization were also observed. Okay, um, again, uh, they the pilot flying was the first officer, not the captain. Well, not really. Uh, at 7.51.20, the go-around switches were pushed again, increasing the thrust to the maximum thrust available. And we've heard Miami Rick talk about this uh, double go-around uh, switchology and, and thrust and stuff. And I'm sure he's going to tell us about what, Liz? No, I just like the word switchology. I oh, okay. <laughs> and the pitch reached a maximum of 24 degrees. Woo, 24 degrees. That seems kind of high for a 777, even in a go-around. But I, I don't know. Uh, we'll find out here in a second. Uh, hang on, Rick. I know he's just chomping at the bit, and he wants to talk Dying. about this. <laughs> the co-pilot called out positive climb and retracted the landing gear. The configuration warning was displayed. The associated oral warning siren sounded. The two pilots continued simultaneously making inputs on the controls. The captain made more pronounced nose-down inputs for a few seconds. Uh, the captain uh, at 7.52.06, the captain was the sole person making inputs. The crew completed the go-around actions. I think the, uh, quote, pilot flying probably just, okay, uh, I guess you have the airplane. Uh, the crew analyzed the situation without perceiving the antagonistic inputs made on the controls <laughs> and the desynchronizations of the control channels. They considered that they could use the AP, the autopilot again, good idea, and carry out a new approach. The co-pilot became the pilot flying again. Captain informed the controller that there had been a problem on the flight controls and asked to join the final for runway 27 right. The approach and landing took place without further incident. The sustained input. Now, Rick, were you, did you have a chance to hear the uh, actual audio from this? I did. Uh, when I he did. was struggling with. Okay, so when the captain or whoever was uh, putting sustained input on the controls led to the push to talk button on the control yoke uh, depressed and the autopilot disconnect switch. Uh, oh, being involuntarily pressed, the latter action causing several activations of the associated warnings. No failure warning was activated during the occurrence. No anomaly was observed on the airplane. Um, 
at this stage, the analysis of the parameters uh, does not show inconsistencies, in particular between the movements of the controls and the movements of the airplane. In other words, there's nothing wrong with the airplane. Uh, particular attention will be given to reproducing the forces applied to the controls and to the relationship between these forces and the movements of the controls. And uh, now I don't know. I wasn't looking at the uh, what was on the screen here, Liz. Were you? Did you have a chance to put up any of the graphics I did. yet? Didn't yeah, I put them both? I did put them both. Oh, you up. did. Yes. Okay. Um, so get ready to put up the, uh, the flight data recorder graphics here, because I think that might be yep, kind of illustrative of, um, the, uh, what was going on here. And, uh, you know what, because we have uh, Miami Rick with us here and he has, uh, way more experience in the triple seven than anybody else here on the crew. In other words, he's the only one that has experience with flying the triple seven. He's the only one brave enough. <laughs> Are you kidding me? That's a great airplane. I have experience in the jump seat, but not yeah. touching you, the controls. You know, I, I am actually joking when I say a lot of these things. What? Oh, no. It only, it only took me five years to figure that one out. <laughs> Them spotty oh, words. Yeah. All right. Go ahead, Rick. What happened well, here? Well, I, I, got, I got a couple of things here. Uh, yeah. First of all, um, I'm, I'm looking at the weather. Uh, mm-hmm. Looks like the uh, ceiling's at 300 feet. Uh, it's broken 300, right? Um, Which means, yeah, uh, it was so low vis. Yeah, I'm looking at I mean, uh, 3,000. Yeah, 3,000 with mist and broken at 309 slash eight on the temperature dew points is saturated, low visibility. Which um, makes me wonder. I mean, it's not like you can't do it, but one of the things that I do, and this is as a technique of mine, um, I will keep the autopilot coupled to the ILS until I have visual contact with the runway. Um, and that's just something that I do. And I, something a lot that I, of I, us do. I, yeah. And something that I ask my first officer to do, uh, when it's, uh, their leg, because it's, it's a lot easier to, you know, just monitor the airplane, um, on, on, on a critical phase, such as, uh, as, you know, short final on an, on an instrument landing system. I'm not saying that you can't fly it manually as long as you follow the, the, the flight director, but what, what, what put yourself in that position? So that, that's, that's number one. Number two, on the 777, and this is from experience, actually. This happened to me during initial operating experience when I first started flying the 777 back in 2010. Um, as we know, the 777 has, and this is a 300ER, I believe. So it's got the same engines as the 200 freighter, the one that I flew, the GE 90 115. Uh, although the freighter is only D rated 210,000 pounds, but that's neither here nor there. But the, what I'm trying to get to here is the fact that um, these engines are very 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 powerful engines right um and so when you um when you hit the go around switches as we've talked about many many times uh when you hit it once um the automatic flight director system is going to command the amount of thrust only the amount of thrust required to give you a 2000 foot a minute climb initially that's all that's really it's really all you get right so you get you hit it once and the airplane's going to climb at 2000 feet per minute to whatever altitude you have set up on your mode control panel, there you miss approach altitude, right? Um, when you hit it again, uh, the auto throttle system goes into what's called thrust reference mode, which is full blast. Uh, it's the amount, it's the maximum power available from the engines. It takes away any kind of derate, any kind of assumed temperature on the takeoff side of things. And then on the go around side of things, when you hit it again, it just goes to the maximum amount of thrust the engine has available at that time. Now you 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 add to that the fact that you were IMC, and um, 
we've uh, learned from a uh, an, an accident back in what was it 2018 uh, 7-6 that went into Houston where the go around switches were inadvertently pressed in IMC in instrument conditions without and obviously when you're in instrument conditions you don't have a visual reference to the horizon or the outside right and so your um you are at the behest of your instrumentation and your and and your and your and your sensations, right? So your 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 senses, and that's why whenever you fly instruments, as you know, instrument flying one hundred and one, do not trust your senses. Always trust your instruments. But when you have that kind of power coming at once at the same time, you know, out of the blue, uh, it's it's going to give you the the uh, the illusion of, of of falling back. Right, so that's somewhat a graphic um, uh, illusion there, and uh, I appreciate the, the the honking back there. Um, they were honking at you. Hey, go, yeah, Miami exactly. Rick. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and so that's that's why I see. Uh, I, I could see that becoming a, an issue where the captain is trying to push uh, the nose forward, um, and now the location of the of the uh, of the um, uh, autopilot disconnect switch on the triple seven is on the um, on. If, if you look at the yoke, right, on the captain's side, everything's going to be on the left-hand side. The trim switches, the autopilot disconnect switch is just, to the, just above and to the right of the trim switches. And then behind the, uh, the, the actual yoke where you, where you grab, you have the um, uh, radio transmit switch up and the interphone switch down. And so that's, I, I imagine, and I, I make sense to me, that the captain pushing the nose down, he may have uh, inadvertently pressed that autopilot disconnect switch. Now they were flying manually at the time, but if you hit the button, it you know an alarm is going to go off until you hit it again, and that silences the alarm. But this is that's the end result. But how the heck did we get to this point in the first place? Now, what I was going to say from experience, what happened to me and IOE is, um, oftentimes, um. Because of, I don't know, uh, you may have uh, a little bit of a lateral fuel imbalance, for example, and you may need to trim that out a little bit. So when you, when you cruise, ideally what you want to have is you want to have the yoke centered. And this is, I know this is boring for, uh, for Airbus pilots because they don't know what the hell a yoke is or a trim is. Um, but you want to have... the middle of an egg. <laughs> I know. <laughs> the yellow bit, gentlemen. So what, what you want to do is you want to you want to use your rudder trim to level the yoke out and have and, and you can do this one of two ways right so you, you say for example the yoke is turning slightly to the left right so what you're going to do to level the yoke out is you're going to give yourself a little bit of uh, there's a procedure for this right you go to heading hold um, because by using heading hold um, uh, you are basically telling the airplane to hold its heading because if you, you can't trim using lateral navigation or manage mode because the autopilot is going to constantly be fighting wind, right? So you want to go to a heading hold. That way, the, the airplane is basically uh, holding the heading that it's flying uh, uh, regardless of wherever the wind is coming from. And so any change you make to your ailerons is going to be because of the amount of trim that you're introducing. And so if your left wing is low, what you want to do is you want to give yourself enough rudder trim to the left to bring the yoke back to center. And then you can go ahead and go to your flight control synoptic and make sure the ailerons are streamlined with the wing. Now, the problem here is, remember, and what happened to me, when you go 
from autopilot on to autopilot off. And this is on every Boeing airplane, the autopilot does not control the rudder uh, above 1,500 feet radio altitude. And so if you disconnect the autopilot above 1,500 feet radio altitude, that amount of rudder is still in. The rudder on the 777 is very, very powerful. It's got, it's got dual rudders, and then the bottom rudder is double hinged. And so it's a very, very powerful rudder. You know, I'm not saying this is what happened here, but in, in my experience, this is what happened to me. I disconnected the autopilot, and all of a sudden, in trying to fly a, a, an ILS, and the closer you get to the runway, the more sensitive it gets. What happened to me is I had to start fighting that rudder trim to try to stay on the localizer, right? And I had forgotten that I had that amount of rudder trim in. And that can lead... You know, and that can lead you to to get destabilized as you get closer and closer and closer because the tolerances get 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 smaller and smaller and smaller. That is what I I don't know what the position of the rudder trim was when they disconnected. The fact that they disconnected above 1,500 feet radio altitude tells me that the autopilot was not controlling the rudder because had it been south of fifteen hundred feet radio altitude, that wouldn't have been an issue. Which is uh, why I would have just left the autopilot on and possibly just landed the airplane on you know, uh, either auto landed or 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 landed visually when below the broken layer. But anyway, that's 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 what I think may have happened, and this is again from experience what happened to me. So before you disconnect the autopilot, always make sure that your rudder trim is set back to zero so that you don't find yourself in this in this oscillating motion, rolling motion, trying to keep your localizer um, uh, centered as well as your, uh, your, your glide slip coming down. So that's, that's what I have on that. I don't know what you guys think about that. So uh, do you think in your opinion that the first officer, the pilot flying knew that he was manually flying the airplane or did he think, or did the captain oh, think? I, did he, no, okay. Absolutely. No, because, because so on the, on the, um, on the primary flight display right above the horizon, mm-hmm. uh, you're going to have, a slash P for autopilot and F slash D for flight director. F D mm-hmm. means that you're flying, you're flying manually. Okay. Um, uh, uh, the 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 auto throttle uh, staying on. Um, it's it's normal procedure on the triple seven because once you get to uh, about fifteen feet radio altitude, the auto throttle will automatically bring you back to idle, and you'll disconnect the auto throttle when you select reverse thrust. So that's not an issue. Um, right. That's what we do on the seven one seven. Right. If you're flying manually, you, you know you're flying manually because it says F slash D. Okay. Um, sure, it wasn't because of aileron trim with autopilot engaged. That is a good. That is a good point. And in fact, the the uh, flight crew training manual explicitly says, and it's actually a a uh, limitation on the FCOM one. Which is the, uh, the, the the chapter where all the limitations for the aircraft are, are listed, and that's one of them. Uh, the use of aileron trim with the autopilot on is prohibited because of this very issue. But again, if you if you leave a little bit of uh, rudder trim in, you have to, and, and you have the autopilot on, you have to keep in mind that 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 trim, that rudder trim, is keeping your wings level, and when you disconnect the autopilot. You know now the the uh, the ailerons are are just basically you're the, you're you're controlling uh, the ailerons now, but that rudder is still in, so that can lead you into that you know that that that, that dancing back and forth. Okay. Um. So we don't have the uh, 
the cockpit voice recorder transcripts yet that I know mm. of uh, to know whether or not the captain at the point at which he decided that uh, in his opinion, that things weren't stabilized, uh, that they should go around. I'm not sure if who directed the go around uh, and they may have said in the, uh, in the uh, report there, I'm not sure if you can kind of scan through there to see, but I, I get the impression that the captain decided that he was going to either assist the the uh, first officer in fly, hand flying the airplane or intended to take control of the airplane. But as far as I know, at no point did the captain say, again, I don't know if we have evidence or not of this, that he had the airplane and then I have control. And this is so important that this is what I'm, maybe it's just in my mind that this is what may have happened here because <clears throat> we have inputs on the controls. And Liz, if you can put that uh, graphic back up on yep. the control inputs, yep, right uh, where you have um, clearly the uh, with the traces, especially let's see about uh, the fourth I, one, two, three, four, five, the fifth one down, the uh, control yoke, uh, control column position. You can see at the point of go around there, you can see the input on the captain side, and you can see the input on the first officer side. And where they diverge, that's a problem. And it could be. I don't know. If if this is what the investigation is going to reveal, but uh, the point at which the captain's input or control column uh, goes pushes the nose forward is the point at which it looks like the nose, the attitude uh, of the airplane gets way up. Now, what would be a typical uh, Rick? If you remember, a typical pitch attitude for a a regular go around? Uh, fifteen degrees. Okay. And then what if you degrees. hit the thing twice and you have full power? Would it would it get, ever get up to 24 degrees? Uh, no, it wouldn't. Uh, okay. it, uh, because, because and, and, and that's, that's a good point as well, because uh, the wind shear escape maneuver um, actually calls for pushing the go around the, the, the toga switches twice. Mm -hmm. And that gives you that 20 degrees. But, uh, yeah. but, but normal go around is 15. Now, if you get outside of that, then you're clearly flying manual. Well, I'm wondering, you know, again, I'm surmising or, you know, trying to analyze this, looking at these control column, control inputs, um, recording. Um, if, if that's the point at where she goes, you know, he's, he sees the pitch way up there. He's going, Whoa, that's going to be way too much. And kind of pushing forward on the mm -hmm. control yoke, but it almost seems like they were fighting against each other. And you'll remember in the audio recordings on the, on the radio, uh, they were, there were so much force applied to the control columns that uh, you could hear the, well, I don't know which pilot or maybe both of them were kind of grunting. You could, they were straining trying to push or pull the controls uh, and they were opposing each other. And then it, it, they, they mentioned that the controls were desynchronized. Now, does that mean that I know that I've flown airplanes, including the one I'm flying now, that if there is an opposite force on the control column, uh, the control column, there's a torque tube down there and uh, there's a mechanism that will disconnect the control. So normally if you're exactly in an airplane, like on the ground, you're up in the cockpit and you, know, you pull one of the pilots pulls back on the control column. Uh, the other one goes too, or you turn, you know, left and right and they're all connected to each other, but there's a certain point, And I think they make this uh, so that if you get a situation where one of the control columns is jammed, then you, it's possible for you to, with enough force, break free from that, uh, simultaneous or that connection between the two sides, and then you can control the airplane that way. That, and, that is, and that is, in fact, in, in, in the checklist. You know, just you just uh, uh, apply enough force to disconnect the other one, 
and uh, be able to control the aircraft. Now, the way it works in the triple seven, it's it's uh, it's 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 kind of the same. But uh, so there is a physical aspect of the triple seven um, um, uh, flight controls. Uh, the 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 yoke itself. You have what's called a back drive actuator, right? So ba- basically, a back drive actuator. What that does is that. Um, that uh, that physically shows the pilot what the automatic flight director system is doing by moving the yoke left and right, um, and uh, but that is it. It doesn't do it doesn't do up and down. It doesn't do forward and, and aft because remember that on at least on, on on Boeing's. I don't know how it works in Airbuses, but on Boeing's, uh, the way that pitch is controlled is by uh, using the stabilizer. One of um, two stabilizer motors. Um, uh, one goes to the left hydraulic system on the triple seven, and then one goes to the center hydraulic system. And only one motor is used because a single autopilot only uses one motor, and that's why it trims at half speed because it's only using one. Um, for for many reasons, because it's a one G autopilot and a, and a bunch of other things. Uh, but on the fly by wire aspect of things, um, you do have. Uh, separate separate flight control channels that go into a flight control computer mixer basically i'm being very basic here and that sends the signal to the power control unit uh, to the power control uh, actuator power control unit actuator and that moves the flight control uh, surface itself and so whenever there is uh, a movement introduced and that's outside a certain parameter obviously the the um the, the controls are going to be desynchronized because the, the, the computer's not sure which one is the correct one and I used to know off the top of my head what the reset period was for this thing. I can't remember off the top of my head right now. Uh, but it, it doesn't take long. It, it, it comes it comes uh, right back because you can't have a ambiguity of control for that long because that can you know that that can lead to it to a uh, to, to a disaster situation. So this quickly. this desynchronization um, then is not actual physical control column disconnect. It's actually no. just a uh, it, it's a fly by wire system desynchronization and priority exactly. for one exactly. or the other. Okay. Gotcha. Exactly right. Now once you get past a certain threshold, then the control the the, the yokes actually disconnect physically because remember uh, these do uh, are these are connected physically one to the other okay right oh, okay there is and, that as well okay i was just wondering why they were using the the term desynchronization and not disconnection so now i that makes sense all right uh so i don't know for i could be completely wrong here but it almost seems to me that the 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 big well of course not just the setup to the thing but the thing that caused the the struggle between the pilots was that it seems to me that somebody didn't make it clear that they were taking control of the airplane and that is so so important in in our job that the person everybody in the cockpit knows who is who is controlling the airplane because it can have disastrous results uh if you don't know or if you think that you're the one controlling and you're not or you think the other person is flying the airplane and they're not so you know, it's, and not only so. that, I, and I'm and I'm I'm, I'm going to add to that. Um, also, make sure, and that's that's why it's so important to make uh, a very uh, important mental note of what your flight mode negotiations are, your FMAs are, because you may think that the autopilot is on, but it might not be. Mm-hmm. You know, so or you may think you're in L, uh, lateral navigation, but you're actually in head and select. You know, why isn't this thing turning? So always, and, and some airlines 
um, uh, actual changes, FMA changes, are mandatory call-outs, uh, not for some. Uh, um, um, but if, if you keep that in your scan, uh, then you will never be surprised. So, um, yeah. yeah. What do you think, Nick? I'm, I'm going to stay out of this one because, not just because I don't know a lot about the 777, uh, and everything I'm hearing is making me go, whoa. Um, it's just that I would naturally compare it with Airbus, and I don't think that's helpful in this circumstance. The aircraft is what it is, and everyone should know how to fly it. And these guys obviously got into a bit of a mess. Because I could, so I could make comments about how this shouldn't happen with um, the yoke style control system that Boeing favor um, compared with the side stick uh, of Airbus. I could also mention the fly by wire aspects that Airbus have that would, uh, that you know, that you need to do manually um, in the 777. But like I say, that there's not a lot of point doing that because. You know, what's, what, there is no advantage in saying that. It won't help uh, our analysis, um, but that that's kind of where I am. It, it, it's fascinating to hear how much you have to do uh, on the 777 to uh, take out small errors. Uh, it sounds mm. to me like the first officer was doing a, a bit of a – having a bit of a problem manually flying the aircraft, got himself into a slight PIO, what induced that mm. – Rick's explained, uh, and um, the captain, even though they weren't unstabilized, didn't seem to like this and, you know, called for a go-around. And you can tell there was a huge amount of confusion because obviously they're both doing different things with the control column. But at one point, the pilot flying, the first officer, calls positive rate. That would be a call that comes from the pilot monitoring. The captain should have said that. Yes. So their roles are confused. And that, for me, is a huge takeaway here because yes. you can't let that happen, particularly when you're flying a maneuver like a go-around. Inevitably, you're relatively close to the ground, and we know how many incidents happen during go-arounds. So, and, you know, and apparently these guys were IMC as well. Yeah. So Yeah. Absolutely, that, yeah. That, that layer complication there. Now, I was going to ask you, um, uh, Nick, what is your what is your contention, uh, or how how would you when, when you were um, a skipper, um, when conditions were IMC like this, would you would you have your FOs fly manually, uh, 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 manually fly an ILS to uh, to minimums, or would you tell them to keep it on till they saw the wrong? No, I, I would I would leave it up to the pilot if he's confident to follow the flight directors down the minimums and he wants to mm. hand fly to get a feel for the weather and the wind, etc., and mm. just practice his instrument flying. Then I would have no objection to that because. Mm. Uh, to be fair, the aircraft was relatively benign uh, instrument flying or visual flying. It made very That's little true. difference. Mm -hmm. That's true. That's true. Yeah, the critical thing, regardless of what kind of airplane you're flying, whether it be Airbus or Boeing or McDonnell Douglas or whatever, uh, it's so important that uh, everybody knows who is in control of the aircraft. Yeah. Whether it's on yeah. the autopilot or not, you have to know. It's yeah. very dangerous when you don't, and that seems to be yeah. the problem here. Yeah, their, their crew discipline completely broke down. Mm -hmm. I agree. Wow. Yeah, I was very surprised. You know, at first, when we first talked about this incident, we just thought it was some kind of an autopilot issue. Oh, yeah. That's we thought, I, was, I, thought. I was convinced it was something uh, a bit dodgy with the airplane, perhaps. But uh, no, apparently yeah. not. 
Yeah. All self-induced. Yeah, which is uh, pretty scary. Pretty scary. And I, I agree with I hope boxes there. It's absolutely good practice, as Nick said, but both parties need to be on top of their game in such a situation. And I'm going to be very, very honest with all of you right now. At the end of a 12-and-a-half-hour flight uh, crossing several, several time zones and, uh, you know, being a bit of jet lag and all this and all that and dehydrated and maybe a little over-caffeinated, I am not at the top of my game. Um, uh, so it is, it is, uh, in, in my estimation, the safer course of action many, many times is to just let George do the work until you see the runway and then go from there. But that's just, that's just me. No, yeah. no, I, I was Sensible. exactly the same. Yeah. If, if I had someone, uh, you know, after a 13 hour flight who wanted to take the autopilot out at 20,000 feet and hand fly <laughs> the whole approach, I used to look at him and go, you know, you've got to consider that. Both of us need to be on our game here. And eyeball boxes is quite right there. If I'm a pilot monitoring and I'm not able to keep up because I've got all these other duties like, you know, all the radio changes and a lot of other stuff to do, he's just hand-flying the airplane and calling for stuff, and I'm the one with hands flashing around the cockpit. If I'm not, if I'm not doing it very well, I'm going to slow him up, and then he's not going to do very well. So, you know, I used to cry and say, do you have to? Do you really want to do that? I mean, I said I'd do my best, but. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I'd, I'd just be like, yeah, you know, just, just no, just give me a break. <laughs> so, just leave it. Exactly. Yeah. Just, you know, just I need at least two time more time. coffees before we try yeah. that. <laughs> Now, flying manually from uh, from Kona to Maui, that's different. That's a mm -hmm. nice little short 25-minute flight at 300 knots, oh, yeah. and that, that is good practice. That would be um, pure joy. Yeah. But uh, not at the end of a 13-hour leg. I don't, I'm don't. i right there with you, Nick. Speaking of bad activities in the cockpit. Well, Liz says, speaking of bad activities in the cockpit, let's move to the next item. Uh, this uh, 2016 <laughs> crash of... Egypt Air Flight 804 from Paris to Cairo. It was an Airbus uh, A320, I believe, and that's probably why it crashed. No, I'm just kidding. Um, uh, let's it see wasn't here. Me. It wasn't uh, me. I know. I'm just. I'm just having fun. Just stir um, in the pot. Was uh, caused by a pilot smoking a cigarette. An investigation is found. Uh, let's see. You'll remember that this is uh, this flight between Paris and Cairo uh, over the Mediterranean Sea. They they revealed quite quickly or there was evidence revealed uh that there was some sort of a fire in the cockpit uh and uh the uh egyptian investigators initially said they found no traces of explosives and the remains of victims on it so they thought it could be uh, some kind of a bomb or something like that um and uh the egyptian investigators also have been very reluctant to uh, blame it on either of the crew members, in this case, the first officer. But a confidential 134-page investigation document compiled by French experts and sent to the Paris Court of Appeal now attributes the cause of the crash to the pilot's cigarette smoking. According to the, to the report obtained by Italian newspaper uh, Corriere della Sera, the co-pilot's oxygen mask was left in emergency mode instead of normal by a maintenance engineer. Uh, the cigarette caused the oxygen to combust, providing a spark that led to a fire. Shortly before disappearing, the plane's detection system warned of smoke at the front of the plane, the report said. 
the ACAR system, which transmits short messages between aircraft and ground stations, sent seven dispatches in two seconds, including a warning of malfunctioning of a computer system crucial to its flight maneuvering mechanisms. Neither the pilot or the co-pilot asked for assistance. At the time of the crash, authorities were on maximum alert following the terrorist attack at uh, what's a Bataclan concert hall in Paris and in Brussels. Uh, due to the terrorism claims, Egyptian authorities did not release their findings and did not produce a report within one year as prescribed by international law. France's Bureau of Inquiry and Analysis, BEA, analyzed the plane's black box, but intergovernmental agreements are preventing the French authorities, who are not officially in charge of the investigation, from divulging any information. Uh, so they, they go into a lot more detail here, but apparently... Uh, this airplane had a, um, a his maintenance history of a few days prior of uh, some kind of a problem with the oxygen regulator on the first officer's side and uh, the fact that the regulator was replaced. And as they mentioned in the, in the first part of the, uh, the 134-page report, that uh, they think that the maintenance technician, maintenance engineer, uh, left the oxygen mask in emergency mode instead of normal. Now, I would say, now, well, hang on. <laughs> We as pilots uh, are required to do a, uh, a pre-flight and test of our oxygen system before each flight. And uh, I'm thinking that if anybody left it in emergency, it would have been the pilot, not the maintenance engineer. Uh, what would yep. you guys think? Yeah, absolutely. Not only that, but if, if it's an emergency, uh, it would, wouldn't that empty the oxygen bottle? Pretty quickly, I would think. Pretty quickly. So uh, that's, uh, I, I don't know. I don't know about that one. Um, so there's uh, there's um, there's there's a couple of settings on your oxygen regulator there, right? So you have um, usually we fly on 100% oxygen, so that whatever it is that you're breathing is not mixed with cabin air of any kind. It's just basically you know pure, pure oxygen. And what emergency means is all that really does. And and um, of course, I'm sure. Uh, probably the same way on, on on military aircraft. I'm sure Nick's will be able to fill that in for me here. Uh, when you go to emergency, all that really does is that it produces oxygen at pressure. So it's positive pressure oxygen, which which uh, which makes you breathe it, whether you are consciously doing or consciously breathing yourself or not. It's basically pushed into your system. And so that's, that's why leaving the oxygen on emergency makes no sense to me because, number one, you'd hear it. Uh, and then number two, the as part of your uh, of your uh, uh, pre-flight cockpit preparation, uh, one of the things you look at um, is the status of the oxygen system and the level of oxygen you have uh, for your flight there. And so uh, I, I don't know, something, I'm not completely clear in this one. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I'm surprised that they haven't been able to work out the actual position on the mask. Perhaps it was impossible uh, because the you know, the aircraft was too badly destroyed. But, um, yeah, I agree. Uh, it's it's a loud noise when you've got it on emergency. It makes a big, loud hiss. And I think that would be hard to miss. Um, and, um, you know, if we do our checks properly, we don't leave it on emergency. And it's really quite obvious. Uh, I think it's more likely, if they want to blame it on the oxygen system, that there was a malfunction or a dislike leak from the oxygen system on his side. But I'm also a little bit suspicious because I know we don't nowadays, but for generations, pilots have been smoking in aircraft. and I've never heard of an oxygen fire caused by a pilot smoking in an aircraft. I mean, you've got ashtrays, 
they're only a few feet from the oxygen mask, but, um, you know, you've still got to get a lot of oxygen onto that cigarette. Uh, it's got to s- sit there and um, combust till it gets to a sufficient temperature to actually ignite the oxygen. And um, then, of course, all you've got to do is reach up and turn off the oxygen push button over your head to kill that source of ignition or that source of air. Uh, and But, you know, there, so there are lots of things here that are, are confusing me. Both they won't don't seem to, the Egyptians and the French, don't seem to be getting their pup in a pile uh, mm. with regards finding a cause for this, and I don't think they necessarily ever will. Yeah, and it's... And it's- and it's interesting because it's uh, it's kind of the same with uh, Egypt Air 990, same airline. You know, uh, with, it was always uh, very up in the air. What really, uh, what, what may have happened to uh, that 76 that went uh, went into the Atlantic Ocean that uh, fateful Halloween uh, evening? And so, uh, I don't know. I, I I don't think we'll find out. It almost sounds like uh, the various um, uh, players in this are trying to protect their own interests, perhaps. Oh, very much so, Jeff. Yeah, I agree. All right. And then finally, let's uh, quickly cover the last item in our news notebook. And this is <laughs> from the BBC.com. And uh, let's see, I guess we're going to start off by saying uh, Israel airport chaos as family brings unexploded shell. Yeehaw! All right. Uh, the family <laughs> had it was an American brought family, wasn't it? it was an American family. Yes. Yes, it was. <laughs> Uh, had brought... Uh, Were they Texicans? <laughs> could be. I don't know. A U.S. family caused a bomb scare at Israel's main international airport after presenting an unexploded artillery shell at a security check. They had picked up the ordinance on a visit to the Israeli-occupied Golan Heights side of wars between Israel and Syria, according to authorities. Video footage on social media showed people running from the scene in panic. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Run away! <laughs> The family was allowed to board the, their flight after being interrogated by security, who gave the all clear. Israel, um, let's see, captured most of the Golan Heights from Syria during the Six Day War in '67, and remnants of the conflict can still be found in the area. Uh, Israel, Israel's Ynet news site said in the incident on Thursday night, a member of the family produced the shell from their backpack and asked a security official if it could be put in a suitcase. <laughs> That was a mistake. Uh, The official ordered her immediate vicinity to be cleared, but another passenger who misheard her started shouting, terrorist shooting. Wow, that doesn't help. Uh, Triggering mass panic. Video posted on social media by Israel's Khan public broadcaster showed dozens of people shouting and fleeing the check-in area with others crouching or lying on the floor in confusion. Uh, let's see. Among the chaos, a 32-year-old man, Yuri, injured himself as he tried to escape and was taken to the hospital. I was at the airport waiting for an hour in line until I got to the check-in counter and suddenly, at a radius of five meters, people started running away and left luggage. The fear was that someone was spraying bullets. I understand that I, too, have to escape, so I ran towards the check-in, stumbled on a conveyor belt, and flew a distance of six meters. Wow. Well, That's a pretty yeah, powerful if he his technique. He won't need the airplane next time. Oh crap! <laughs> I haul boxes says, and on that bombshell, let's get to our getting to know us segment. Oh, that was a great, uh, Good great segue. Good great segue. segue. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, really, is there anything to say here no. other than, oh come on, yeehaw, yeehaw. yeehaw. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
Okay. Well, uh, I think we're going to take the direction uh, instead of from you, Liz, we're going to take it from I Hall Boxes and Perfect. head over to Love Getting it. to Know Us, <laughs> which is that segment of the show where we get to get caught up on what each of the crew members has been up to between shows. And, uh, ooh, and we're going to start with, of course, Miami Rick, because uh, he hasn't been with us on a, on a few episodes. So we need to catch up and see what's been happening with you, man. Well, uh, you know, a lot of the same. I've uh, been flying a lot as well. Um, I did my annual uh, proficiency check. So that was a nice four days down in Miami enjoying that uh, that beautiful weather. Are you proficient? It looks like I'm uh, proficient. It looks like I still have it, uh, sadly. Excellent. And, uh, and uh, <laughs> Jeff says that I should uh, get myself checked out. Still <laughs> if you it. still so, have it. Yeah, so I'm, I'm 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 working on that, but <laughs> it was good. It was good. A nice, a nice four days down in Miami, um, and then um, just um, working here at home, uh, having um, I'm, I'm clearing out the uh, the bedroom there, making a nice open plan closet slash bathroom there for the uh, master bedroom suite. Going to get started with the uh, major renovation of the house here in uh, the next uh, two to three months. Um, so working, that's going to be good. Add a couple thousand feet to uh, to to the uh, house here. That's going to be good. Um, and then uh, what else? Oh, and then my last trip here um, a couple of days ago, I did my annual uh, line check, which is something else that we have to do uh, every every year. Which is which was really interesting because it was a uh, it was a, a red eye from uh, good old Stockton, California, to where the heck did we go? Uh, Stockton to Cincinnati. I don't know. We went somewhere north. I oh, know Rockford, Rockford, because I, I shot a uh, an RNAV approach. Um, and uh, my line check airman for the uh, for for the day was the uh, senior officer, Marine senior officer in charge of the V twenty two Osprey uh, project when the Osprey first came online. So huh. um, he had a lot of very very interesting. Uh, very interesting stories um, flying the uh, the CH forty six before you went on to the V twenty two, and then the issues they had with the V twenty two during the uh, implementation of the program, and the couple of crashes they had. They had to go; he had to go back to flying CH forty sixes, and and then working in the Pentagon and all that stuff. And so, uh, uh, really, really interesting fella. And then my first officer <laughs> was a uh, just like uh, just like uh, Colonel Jeff. He was a uh, Full legal colonel, F fifteen driver of twenty seven years. So um, I was certainly in uh, in great company, and it just it just you know it just never ceases to amaze me um, that yeah you might have the fourth strap on your shoulder, but let me tell you what boy, you have no idea, you have <laughs> no idea. So uh, just uh, just uh, stay humble, always yeah. stay humble. Absolutely. Well, so, they all these fighter pilots. Rick, they're generally going to make sure you know. You know, you know what it was. You know what it was. So the uh, so my line check airman pilot, he was well. Obviously, you, I mean, you, you can you can tell a marine from 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 a mile away. Yeah, you, you can just call it. So the guy was, you know, he was in spotless uniform. Um, you know, shoes. I could see my face. Which I'm, I'm. You, well, you know me. I, I like to kind of do the same thing. Oh, but yeah. then he had his. 
he had this uh, this uh, big sticker on his uh, on his uh, roller board, you know, the Marine Corps uh, Eagle Globe and Anchor. So that's a dead giveaway. Uh, <laughs> we shaved heads and those, and I go, wow, crap. <laughs> but no, but it was it was great. It was great. And then going into Rockford, um, wind was really howling out of the west. And uh, Rockford only has an ILS to seven and an ILS to one, and so uh, you know it's on our nav approach. It is so we come back around, uh, get vectored around, and it's interesting because when you go into Rockford, which is um, um, under the major airspace uh, into a hair, they usually what they do is they'll they'll, they'll uh, send you early, and you're pushing around about fifteen thousand feet for the last about twenty minutes of the flight there to get you out of the way. Um, then as you come back around, um, the procedure itself is a little bit more involved because you have to arm the lateral mode of the autopilot and then arm the vertical mode of the autopilot, just like you would in ILS, but there's a bit more, it's a bit more nuance and there's a bit, it's, it's a bit more involved, uh, at least on, 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 in, in, on Boeing airplanes. Yeah, I hate that. Yeah, how to fly. <laughs> how to fly. Yeah. Uh, our navigate. It's funny because we use we actually use a um, uh, an acronym, uh, LABS, L A B S, and that kind of reminds you of what to do in what order. So L for L nav, so you can track in down. A for altitude, you set your altitude to uh, your VA uh, uh, or MDA, whatever it is, to the higher um, to the next higher hundred uh, foot uh, increments. Uh, v for V navs. Uh, to, so that you can start uh, tracking the electronic glide path down, and S for speed because you have to hit the speed mode, uh, hit, hit the speed knob there to intervene the speed. Otherwise, the auto throttle is going to give you 250 knots, whatever it is, because you're below 10,000 feet there. So it's very, very involved. And the cool thing about this particular approach is that, just like um, the incident here with Air France in Paris, uh, we broke out just at about. Uh, about a, about a thousand feet. Um, uh, the DA for that particular approach was uh, 650, if I remember correctly. And so you break out, and the first thing you do when you break out, obviously, as uh, the, the final track for the approach and the final track for the runway on paper coincide, but they don't really coincide. So you have to disconnect and, you know, line yourself up there. And the wind is, you know, it was pretty strong crosser from the left at about you know 25 knots so you have to fight that so but it was good it was good landed no problem checked out get to go for another year so uh, always uh always nice to be on this side of things uh, so I got oh absolutely time. simulator how many beers did that cost you uh none actually he um <laughs> we we, <laughs> we got in and then uh in uh, in expert marine uh uh traditional way he uh put on his uh pt uh, personal training uh, clothes and he went out for a run for a 5k run <laughs> <laughs> all right okay <laughs> like, okay you enjoy sir fair enough i'm just gonna go ahead the marines and, uh, i've flown with uh they're at the bar like within yeah. <laughs> five minutes of getting to the hotel <laughs> so yeah. it's, uh, it was it was a good time it was a good time excellent Yes, All right. Well, good to, good to hear the update. Always good to see you and hear your uh, take on things, especially with your experience. I All I know is how little I know. Well, so, the older you get, the more you know that you don't know very much. Exactly right. Exactly right. Yep. Captain Nick, how have you yes, sir. been, sir? Have you been doing some bowling? 
Uh, no, my uh, my back has um, regressed into a previous state of disrepair, so uh, I've been nursing it, I'm afraid. So uh, not much doing much at all, really, just trying to get through the day. Um, it feels very unstable at the moment, so not a happy chappy from that point of view. Um, the lovely lady wife uh, is, um, you know, having a checkup uh, tomorrow, so we'll know more about her knee then. And that's about it, really, uh, from here. I've been keeping myself busy with um, plain tales and the like uh, and uh, enjoying a very pleasant spell of weather, which is just kicking off. So we've got about 10 days of nice warm weather Look, coming up ahead. That will be very nice, and that will be excellent. Looking forward to that. Excellent. Very nice, right. very nice. I'd, uh, I'd like to compliment you on your tan, good sir. You look, uh, you look. Uh, uh, it's, uh, it was that uh, Belgian IP, double IPA. <laughs> the cheeks go a bit red. <laughs> so whatever, you, whatever you're doing, keep at it. Just keep going. You look Absolutely, great. Absolutely, yeah. I think yeah. I shall. Uh, let's see. I was on a three-day trip, uh, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Uh, had a Des Moines layover on Monday and uh, back. Baton Rouge on Tuesday. Ooh. And, uh, oh, it was so cool because our driver, he was great. We had, we stayed at the Hilton downtown Baton Rouge and he said, I don't know what's going on, but our, our local, uh, what do they call that? The, um, people promoting the city, uh, chamber of commerce, uh, were like out on the street and they had this big giant pot of, um, jambalaya that they were just giving People as and he goes, we'll stop by there, see if they're still giving away the free jambalaya on the way to the hotel. And went, okay. So like two blocks away from the hotel, we stop. He talks to the guy, you know, and we all get out and get our big bowl. I mean, huge bowls of jambalaya. And I'm thinking, oh, I could get used to this kind of treatment. Uh, where's the beer? You know, uh, no, I better, better not drink while I'm in uniform. What is it? Some sort of euthanasia project for homeless people? Uh, not sure. I think they're trying to really, yeah, euthanasia. Um, I think they're trying to get, get, things have been not great for Baton Rouge, especially the downtown area for a number of years. And I think they're doing their best to try to make it an attractive, uh, location for people to come, you know, for their conventions yeah. and that kind of thing. So I think they're Man, just I love good. Baton Rouge. I love Louisiana. It's just yeah. uh, such a great place. Good people. Oh, the food. Oh, oh the man. food is amazing. Yeah. I was, uh, and he was telling us, uh, you know, I asked him, like, what do you recommend for, uh, for food? And he, he said, uh, this one place called like poor, poor boy Louis or something like that, which is just a couple blocks from the hotel. I thought he po said, boy, po boy. Po boy. well, actually it was actually per, it was spelled out P O O R, but yes, po uh -huh. boy. um, but, uh, poor boy Lloyd's, I guess is what he told us the, the place was. So I walked mm -hmm. over there. Uh, I thought he said it opened at three 30. Uh, no, it closed at three 30. <laughs> and this was about, oh, uh, four 30 when I showed up and I went, what, how come the door's not open? <laughs> and, uh, yeah. So I went back to the hotel and had a very mediocre, um, meal at the hotel. Oh, come on. You ate at but, the hotel. Come on. I know. I mean, there, there was that, on, that downtown area, Rick is like a lot of downtowns for smaller towns. Uh, that, uh, only they, they really pretty much only cater to the people that work downtown. Mm -hmm. And so they're, you know, in the early afternoon, they shut, Fold they shut the down. Sidewalks. Yeah. So it was not a lot of choices there anyway. Um, so that was a good trip though. We managed to, uh, avoid, uh, uh, nasty weather 
And uh, let's see, I'm back out again uh, on Saturday. So I only have today off and tomorrow off. And the reason why I did that is because, well, first of all, my four-day trip that I'm leaving on on Saturday, uh, I lay over in Jackson on Saturday afternoon, Jackson, Mississippi. Uh, Fort Walton Beach on, um, I guess that would be Sunday. And then Wichita. Yeah, and then Wichita on Monday, Uh-oh. and then uh, home uh, early in the morning on Tuesday. And the reason why I bid a trip that actually, because normally, as you know, I like to uh, sing at my church, and uh, this weekend I will not be doing that because I and I bid this trip specifically so that I could be home, so that I could drive up to Asheville on Wednesday for uh, one of our. Uh, APG listeners, uh, she and her fiance, soon to be husband, I met with uh, last year on a layover in Nashville. I think it was last year. And uh, they invited me to attend their wedding. So they're getting oh. married on Wednesday. Actually, actually it's Brilliant. in Weaver, Weaverville, which is north of Asheville. And uh, so I'm going to drive up there, not too far from the cabin here, and uh, uh, get to uh, uh, participate or, or spectate at their nice. wedding on uh, Wednesday. Very nice. That's great. Yeah. And then the following week, I'm going to be in training for recurrent training. I think at, uh, I, I think I did my calculations correctly and I have three recurrent trainings left if I go all the way to age 65. So uh, this will be, this will knock out a third of my remaining recurrent. You uh, Brent? Yeah. Brent uh, Heron and I are going to be flailing in the uh, simulator for our, um, for our yeehaw. recurrent training. Yes, yeehaw, for sure. <laughs> um, yeah, and that's uh, that's what's going on with me. So let's wow. do some cover art from last week. Cover art, okay. Let's do it. Uh, last episode was entitled Mountain. What mountain? <laughs> and <laughs> wow, what a great piece of artwork, uh, Nick. Uh, man, you managed to pack in just about every... Uh, uh, thing that we talked about on that show, we have the, of course, the triple seven, um, about to fly into, uh, Mount Cameroon. Uh, and, uh, we have the, uh, of course the jumpers and the army's, uh, golden knights, golden knights. coming into, uh, the nationals ballpark, uh, very close to the white house and the, and the, uh, nation's capital. And uh, I love that little goat that you have there in the little cloud. That's a nice touch. <laughs> of course, uh, Steph was telling us about her uh, her experience at the Boston Marathon. So that must be Steph running up the mountain, which uh, doesn't Absolutely. surprise me at all. She could probably do that. And uh, we also had we talked about that story about uh, American Airlines uh, being sued uh, for uh, losing what did they say four hundred some odd cases of. Cognac. Cognac, yes. Well, we we decided tell. it wasn't uh, the best of the world's cognac. So. <laughs> no, it wasn't very expensive. I, I guess that's why you're in your bar giving it away for nothing. <laughs> Might as well. <laughs> Nobody will pay for that crap. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, so I'm giving it away at the bar. I uh, love that. And, uh, and of course, the uh, the thing off to the right side there, the, uh, the Red Bull plane swap. Oh, both planes are coming down on this one, Nick. Uh, that was a different outcome. Well, yeah, I, I, I guess they've just, uh, I, I don't know. It was very hard. It was very hard to find uh, an appropriate um, visual for that. <laughs> I love yeah. it though. I love it. Good. That could have happened yeah, and it didn't. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly right. <laughs> yeah. But my favorite was actually Steph just uh, finishing off her marathon in Boston 
uh, one mile to go running up, up you know, because I gather Boston is very hilly and you have some real killer hills towards the end. Mm -hmm. That one is. Yeah, she had mentioned that. Finnish flag at the top. Right. Uh, So I I didn't look to see where the uh, show title. It's on her shirt. Oh, it's on her shirt. So you have to really zoom in, I guess, to see. Yeah, Yeah, she had to to zoom in in and look at Steph's chest. Hmm. Okay. I won't touch that one. (laughs) Literally. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say, that's probably a good idea. (laughs) Yeah. She is HR after all. I know. Coffee fun time. Okay, Liz is saying, coffee fun time, Jeff. (laughs) Okay, yeah, I get the idea. Stop talking about stuff. Okay, here we go. Uh, Where is my sound program? Here we go. Boom, coffee fun. Johnny, how much more coffee? No thanks. I love coffee. I love tea. Of the APG community. Coffee and tea and my java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. Okay, now I think I'm back on track. This is where I start talking about the coffee fund and how you can participate in supporting the show financially if you have the resources to do so. And since the last episode, uh, we have couple folks supporting us via the Coffee Fund Classic Method, Alistair Care and Randy Ackerman. They were recurring or recurrent uh, contributors to the Coffee Fund Classic. And the other way to support us is to become a patron of our show via patreon.com. And we have a new producer. Yay! Now, I don't know how to... Rick, how do you pronounce J-O... He stepped away. He stepped oh, okay. Zhao Paolo Ellery. Zhao? I don't know. Not sure if that's the way you pronounce it or not. Anyway, he is he signed up to become a producer of our show and uh, he's pledged a certain amount for every episode and we typically do four or five episodes per month. And uh, so, yeah, if you want to join this fine group of folks who support our show financially, please check it out by heading over to airlinepilotguy.com slash coffee. You'll be glad you did. We will, too. Captain, incoming message. All right, since uh, Rick can't be with us the entire show, just most of it, uh, we are going to jump to a piece of feedback that I believe was kind of aimed at him. And uh, this is from Larry and uh, from Tulsa. He says, for Rick, uh, ironic or are they put into irons? Oh, I get it. Ironic, iron Uh, This pretty well sums it up. And there it is on the uh, screen. Uh, That is a cartoon that shows, um, let's see, uh, I guess a pirate with a, with a hook uh, and uh, replacing his hand says, iron, iron, ye lubbers, put your backs into it. (laughs) Well, we know Rick puts his back into it. (laughs) Very vigorous. I think I know why. What's happened to Rick? I think that, that's what hap- that happened to your back, uh, Nick. Right? <laughs> Wait <laughs> yes, a minute. Where is that? Uh, here we go. Yeah, okay. Nick threw his back iron. Look. <laughs> Have you seen this? 
I don't know if you got a chance to uh, see that, uh, Rick, but uh, he, <laughs> he he has. Oh, play, uh, should we play it. the whole thing? Okay. Yeah. Uh, let me see if I can. I need to. Can, how do I ch- uh, control the volume on that? I don't think I can. Okay. Um, here we go. Uh, I'm going to play it again. Uh, by the way, folks, we are playing a little bit of video. The one where Nick is uh, is showing that Miami Rick has extreme some competition and extreme ironing. Oh, it was a big competition. This this was. Uh, I know. Very important. It's on now. Yeah, you've always got to add a bit of ice to your uh, t-shirts if you want them to look nice. <laughs> the snow melts right when it hits the uh, shirt. It's so hot. No, I'm see. Uh, didn't meet the. Uh-huh. It's so hot, you can just hear the... I think the motorcycles... From one extreme to another. Oh, man, that yeah. extreme ironing. For sure. All right. It's actually that the, the iron is cooler than your surroundings. <laughs> it is. It is. I've always liked riding Harley Davidson when I'm ironing. <laughs> yeah, especially backwards. <laughs> yeah. Oh, this is, uh, I'm skiing with Steph. Here. Um, <laughs> what's, that, uh, what's that on your head? <laughs> Not was sure. A pair of earbuffs. There's some kind of an animal. Hat. <laughs> <laughs> a beaver, I think. Wow. Uh-huh. I think you always yeah. need the appropriate headgear when you're ironing. <laughs> so, exactly right. I mean, he's oh, thrown the gauntlet. He, Rick, he's thrown down the gauntlet. It's on now. You know what? <laughs> funny, funny you mentioned the ironing part here because, well, it was my birthday a couple, uh, exactly a month ago today. Um, and um, Kaya, one of my uh, presents, she got me a travel size iron because <gasps> one of my, so whenever I check into a hotel, there's three things I check. The iron's clean, the toilet flushes, and you got hot water, right? So that's my checklist. Um, so, and, and eight times out of ten, I'll look at the uh, the iron, and it's a dirty iron. And and it, there's nothing worse than you know the, picking up an iron and seeing that it's dirty because then you're going to get your shirt dirty. And so um, mm. she got me a little traveling iron now, so then I don't have to worry about uh, the iron being a. I mean, so I think. I take my ironing very seriously, gentlemen. So you well. actually put uh, an iron in your suitcase? Uh, it's, uh, uh, it's 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 about uh, it's about uh, I don't know so five. That's what she five, said. Yeah, yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly, exactly what she said. Yeah, so, uh, it's it's a travel it's a travel size. So that's that's, that's what I say. Yeah. Oh, sorry, dear, but it's a travel size. You got the travel size <laughs> on. <size. laughs> It's the one I fly with. Yeah. <laughs> I've got a much bigger one at home. You're trouble. You're trouble. I'm sure. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, sure you do. Of course you do. There's a second cartoon. In oh, that. there's a second cartoon as well. Not a cartoon, that, but it's a, an ad. Uh, an ad that uh, Larry um, also uh, sent us with his piece of um, his that? feedback. And it says, wanted one pilot must be trained navigator, engineer, computer technician, HR manager communications officer, customer, 
services operator, weather expert, oh, and must be able to fly a plane. That's pretty good. That's actually the, uh, that's what you need to do when you got four rings on your shoulder. Yeah. All those jobs. Good definition. And fly a plane. Yeah. Maybe number yeah, eight would is. be appropriate, Jeff. Number okay. Uh, Liz is thinking that maybe number eight might be appropriate when we still have right. Rick with us. This piece of feedback from Adam is just hilarious. Uh, Air, Airbus versus Boeing pilot. It's a YouTube video, and let's share it and see what the differences could be. No, R. Or R. <laughs> Boeing pilot in an old yes, truck. <laughs> trying to get the thing into gear. It's somewhere right, there. That's the rudder trim he's trying to fix there. <laughs> get the wings ah. leveled so oh, he we can got, fly the airplane. Oh, we got it started. Oh, grinding the gears a little bit. Darn clutch. Oh, somewhere there. Airbus pilot. <laughs> in, a, in a very nice mutter coach. Look at the way. <laughs> yes, the two fingers. <laughs> the way he's oh, activating dear. the uh, gear shaft is really, I don't know, the only disturbing. Thing that worries me. Is that Airbus guy looks like Sideshow Bob. <laughs> oh, wait. Oh, is that it? I guess that was the whole thing. Yeah, right. Oh, oh, I love that. I love that. Good stuff. Oh, man. How about number four? Now? Okay, number four, Liz is pointing us to. Um, oh, yeah, this is an interesting one. Uh, Robert uh, from Tucker. Uh, let's see. Uh, JetBlue passengers plead with the crew after aborted landings at JFK. Uh, Robert says, curious if the crew has any diversion war stories where decisions were made to fly versus take a bus to a final destination. Best I can share is an AirTran flight years ago where we ran low on fuel from New Orleans to Atlanta and diverted to Macon, Georgia. Of course, passengers were not allowed to deplane in Macon. Yeah, because it was an international flight. It, it, it originated in New Orleans. <laughs> Just oh. kidding. It's uh, not an international <laughs> flight. Um, anyway, uh, so uh, JetBlue passengers, let's see, this is from... New York Post. Um, Got to get off this plane. JetBlue passengers plead with crew. Uh, they were traumatized during their flight. For, oh, yeah, from Cancun to New York City. That's right. Robert's flight was from New Orleans to Atlanta. But this is from Cancun, Mexico, to New York City. Disturbing video shot aboard a JetBlue flight captured passengers clamoring to get off the plane in Newark, shouting that they were scared after several failed attempts to land at JFK airport during bad weather. I'm not going back in the air, one passenger has heard, yelling at officials in the cabin. Another man is seen pleading to get off the plane, where the airline said had been scheduled to land at JFK after a flight from Cancun on Thursday. Um, the man shouts, my kids are panicking. we got to get off this plane. It's dangerous. Uh, we tried to land four times already. We're scared to fly. We want to get off. I don't want to go to jail, but it's just not right, he said. And... Uh, he says, I don't care about JFK. It's our lives. People are sick back there. People are fainting. People are throwing up. A little respect for human beings, the man continues, as other passengers also chime in about wanting to disembark. But the JetBlue spokesperson, Derek Dombrowski, told the Post that the flight 1852 diverted to Newark uh, due to weather over JFK. 
and without proper customs processing available for the flight at Newark, the aircraft remained on the ground for 60 minutes, and once the weather cleared, departed uh, again for JFK. Me. Yeah, I'm thinking the same thing, Nick. I've, <laughs> I've landed from London into Newark many, 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 many times, and they're full of customs people. <laughs> no. They were on break. <laughs> all of them. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's oh, a kind of a lame excuse. Now I could see if yeah. you're going into another airport that actually does not have customs, but Newark definitely yeah. does. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Huh. So, so I had to think about this because, you know, the we, we're all aware of the ramp rules and, um, you know, how long you can keep passengers on your aircraft without offering the option to disembark. And I think for domestic, it's three hours. In international, it's four hours. Yes. Um, but uh, this wasn't that sort of a case. However, can you legally uh, prevent someone who has decided that they're vehemently opposed to traveling any further from getting off, particularly if they're citing you know, a, a fear, a phobia that they mm -hmm. had because of um, the way the flight's been conducted up to that point? I don't. I wouldn't. I, I, that's like holding people hostage against their yeah. will. Um, yeah. I, I, you know, in, in as much trouble as I might get into, if somebody refuses to stay on the airplane, I'm going to let them off the airplane. You know, you are opening yourself up to all kinds of things with that stuff. Yep. You know, just keep people on because you're, you're, uh, I, uh, I tell you. And this right here, folks, is why I fly boxes. So, uh, <laughs> so, uh, yeah. And the boxes don't have people in them, no, as far no, as he knows. Know. <laughs> you know, I'm just going to start start sending packages uh, via um, your freight company with little ad speakers in. And all it's going to do for the whole flight, it's going to shout, hey, you know let what? me off, let me off, I want to get off. I'm afraid, I'm scared. <laughs> And the funny thing is that I know that's something exact. That's exactly something that you would do. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh man! No, but, but, but seriously, seriously, here I I remember um, flying into where the hell was it? We were going into Kennedy, and our alternate was Bradley, and um, we had a similar situation. I mean, I'm talking back in 20. 10, I think it was, or 20, 2008 or 9, well, I don't know, one of those years. Um, and we couldn't let the passengers off because we landed. Uh, so the airport in Bradley, that was our, our alternate. It's an international airport, but the customs facilities and the immigration officers uh, had gone home for the day because we landed quite late. And I believe at the time their uh, operation wasn't a 24-hour operation, so we had to wait refuel wait till the uh, weather got better and then uh, do the short trek back to kennedy um i can understand that but uh, if as nick said <clears throat> if uh, newark has the facilities um i don't see why uh they wouldn't be able to because uh, you know newark is an airport of entry and they have facilities i don't see why the passengers wouldn't be able to disembark there and uh, go through the uh, procedures there i don't know and they're so close too. I mean, that's the, one of the New York airports, basically. Exactly, and, and, and that's the, the other thing I was going to say. So, uh, you know, going to Kennedy with your alternate being Newark is like going to Miami with your alternate being Fort Lauderdale. Uh, so, uh, was it a, a you know a that one collapse that was directly overhead Kennedy, or I don't know, but uh, it's, it's certainly interesting. It is. Well, I've, I've only the, the only time I've had passengers insisting to get off was after a bomb scare before we closed the doors. 
we were out on a remote, so it wasn't like there was a terminal there. Uh, but while we resolved the situation, you know, I've got the standard PAs to make, uh, and um, we just mentioned a security situation, uh, as you do, uh, and I'm sticking it just sticking to the script. But there were a number of passengers who said, uh, "I'm not flying on this aircraft," uh, and uh, wanted to get off. And what? Well, you're not going to hold them against their will. So, uh, yeah, we've got to let them off. And then, of course, you've got to get their bags out, all that kind of stuff. So uh, right. even me and on my best behavior and trying to persuade them didn't work. So there you go. I flew up from Atlanta to Buffalo on the 727. I was a relatively new captain on it. But the winds up there at Buffalo were crazy. Cra- Buffalo, Niagara, I should say, um, that were just really, really bad. And so when you got below... 5,000 feet and we were cruising. We're not cruising. We were flying around getting vectors, you know, maybe a couple thousand feet above the ground. And it was just bumpier than all get out. And the winds were just constantly like they'd call out the winds and they were like out of limits. And then we'd ask them for a wind check again within limits and then ask them again out of limits. The engineer was like, you know, crazy busy trying to do all the calculations for that. And then we'd have to go around every darn time. It was like out of limits. And so we had to go around. We did that maybe three times. And I thought, okay, that's enough. Let's go over to uh, our alternate, which was uh, Rochester. Uh, Rochester, I think. Or, no, no, it was uh, Syracuse. And uh, so we got to Syracuse. And uh, there were, I think, five or six passengers that said, we, we can't do this. And I felt so bad for the people because people were getting sick because it was that bumpy in the back. And, uh, they said, well, we'll, uh, we'll drive, you know, we'll, we'll, you know, or, or we live near Syracuse anyway. We'll t-. And I said, well, you know, you'll understand that we're probably not going to be able to get your bags off the airplane. You're going to have to, you know, pick them up in Buffalo or somehow arrange for them to, or maybe the airline arranged for them to get their bags, whatever. And I didn't stop. In fact, I was thinking, I don't blame them. I would probably do the same like, thing. Can I come with? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I don't want to go. <laughs> I actually called yeah. the, uh, I called I'm the control. Your house I controlled the, uh, call, uh, controlled the call tower. I called the control <laughs> tower uh, in, from Syracuse, uh, Buffalo. I, I forgot how I got the the number, but I called the the tower cab and said, Hey, what, what are the winds doing now? And they said, well, we have like about half the, half the airplanes scheduled to arrive have been diverting and half of them have been making it in depending on what the exact wind readout was at the time. And, and, but they said, it seems like things are kind of starting to die down a little bit. And so I said, okay, I just want to make sure I don't want to take off and head back there and then find that we're not going to be able to get, get in again. So, but we finally made it into Buffalo really late that night, but my question is, did you ever shoot final? Oh, no. no. Okay, wait, maybe about 20 feet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it wasn't more than the width of the runway. No. You. Definitely didn't overshoot the taxiway. Um, number three. Number three, Liz is telling us. Okay, number three. Let's see what that's all about. Um, oh, this is from Devin. Uh, hi, APG crew. I was flying from Fort Lauderdale International to Gra- uh, Great Harbor Island. Ah. Uh, uh, let's see, that's Mike Yankee Bravo Golf at 7,500 feet the other day. It may or may not have been listening to your podcast when I heard it mentioned that as pilots, we usually assume that if we see three green, we are good to go. And we were talking about the 727 accident in Las Vegas. Just to be comical and throw a wrench in that statement, I wanted to point out 
that I fly amphibious caravans for a major seaplane company out of Florida. Three green in the amphib caravan is not a good day, as we have two main gears as well as two nose gears. Four green, four green is needed for a safe landing on land. Uh, He says, photo below, blue lights for water, green for land. Another great piece of information about the gear on the amphib is that we don't fully trust the gear indication. We back it up with a visual check, something you land plane guys can't really do without a buzzing of the tower. Since the aircraft has floats, the gear is positioned far enough to the side of the aircraft that we can look out the window and see this uh, mechanical linkage to verify the gear position located in the bottom of the second photo just beside the single point fuel port. Uh, Since we operate aircraft on the ocean, the gear proxy sensors take some serious punishment and are submerged in salt water daily. These visual checks are a necessity for what we do. Uh, Thanks for a great podcast that keeps me both entertained and up to date on aviation news around the world. Hope you guys can one day have a job as great as mine. Wishing you the best, Devin. I'll trade you. I'll trade you right now. You want to fly a 76? Yeah, look at that. Oh, man. Isn't that beautiful? That is, uh, oh, good, man. I, I absolutely. Hey, look, uh, the um, uh, 7 4 had four greens, didn't it? Uh, no, so the 7 4 of the, uh, the Dash, because keep in mind, I flew the Dash 400 and the Dash 8. And as as long as everything's working fine, it's landing gear down, you get a single down indication. Uh, uh, with a green box around it. Now, when you put the landing gear down using the alternate method, uh, the alternate mode, um, then you get individual um, uh, down indications for the front uh, nose landing gear, uh, two for the wing gear, and two for the uh, body gear. Uh, and it's the same for the 777 and 787. You, everything is working fine. You get a single down. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, the 76 and the 75. Uh, you're going back to your old discrete lights where you have one for each, you know, one for the nose, one for the left, one for the right. But um, they recently changed the checklist where it used to be um, the challenge and response was landing gear. It used to be down three greens. And now it's just down. Uh, but they haven't done that. Uh, they haven't changed that on the um, on the. Um, not normal checklist because the other day when I was doing my my sim check right, uh, when you put the landing gear down using the deferred items checklist, it still says down three greens, and so oh, interesting because yeah, so uh, the three forty had uh, four greens, mm. uh, and uh, what's more, <laughs> I'm going to blow uh, Devin out of the water because of course the three forty six hundred. You had uh, cameras, and you could actually watch, if you wanted to, watch the gear come down and lock in place using uh, the belly camera and the fin camera. So the belly camera looked what you could see the nose wheel come down, and the fin camera behind you could see when the uh, all the main gears, except the belly, you couldn't see the, the center gears, but the wing gears, when they came down, you could see them appear uh, just behind the trailer. What about the pontoons, so we, we could see. Uh, yeah, we we could see all the floats come down as okay. well, okay. particularly when they opened the doors and fired the slides. Yeah, <laughs> um, the Harrier had four uh, four greens as well. Yeah, actually. yeah, two for yeah. the wing and the the, the and the two for the, the uh, center gear wing. and the nose gear. Yep, and two for the the wings. So, uh, so did the Concorde. Concorde had four. 
Yeah. Concord had more, yeah, because it had <laughs> a, a, a a land retractable landing gear all the way in the back, and then your your normal uh, uh, and the um, the Antonov uh, uh, AN one twenty four had seventeen. That's why their yeah, flight deck was so long because it had a big road <laughs> cruise all the way down. Yeah, like the the one two, way, two, yeah, 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 the 225 had 35 greens. <laughs> number oh. five, Jeff. All right, number five. Hello, APG. This is from Keith. Uh, Keith from Little Rock, I want to provide some feedback regarding Anonymous's question regarding their issues surrounding mental health and obtaining a Class 3 medical. Might I suggest a different route? I have discussed this before, but perhaps you might find exploring the Light Sports Certificate, LSA, instead. The LSA rules are very forgiving when it comes to requiring an actual medical certificate and will allow you to achieve your dream of flying with fewer hours and without a medical. I've linked to a great back at the AOPA site uh, on this, but basically to qualify for a sport pilot certificate, you need only to have a valid U.S. driver's license plus 20 hours of flight instruction and pass an FAA written exam and sport pilot checkride. There are limitations, of course. Uh, you can only operate an aircraft that meet the standard airworthiness category of LSA, a max takeoff weight of 1,320 pounds, maximum 100 horsepower, no more than two seats, etc and limited a day VFR flying only. This is where I think it's all about what mission or type of flying you see yourself doing. If you typically think you'll only fly day VFR and typically not have more than one passenger, then getting your third class medical and the regular private pilot certificate may not actually be worth the trouble and expense. Plus, the FAA is absolutely going to be expanding the LSA rules in the next 12 to, 20, 12 to 24 months under something called Mosaic, which almost certainly will expand the types of aircraft you might be able to operate to include such uh, planes as the C, uh, Cessna 150, 172, and Piper Cherokees, and much more. I've mentioned before, but I discovered very early on when getting my private pilot certificate that certain medications that I would take would be an FAA hard no for a medical. A friend pointed me towards looking at light sport, and I haven't looked back since. I'm closing to I'm close to completing my check ride, and have recently bought a Technum P200, which I love. Yeah, remember we had it on the last. Oh, show. that's right, we, we did. That, oh, this right? is the same. Yeah. Ah, this is Keith and Literal. This is Keith again. Okay, yeah, we talked about this on the last episode, and we had some photos of his uh, brand new cool Technum, and uh, he, I think he said he did pass his. Uh, I'm not yeah, sure if he was about to or take his check ride or not. Well, he did um, that cross-country to pick the plane up. Yeah, he did the cross-country to pick the plane up. But um, anyway, uh, refer to the previous episode where we talked about his uh, piece of feedback regarding that. Six and then he gave us a couple of six, links. And I'm going to step away for a minute. Okay. Uh, gave us a couple links uh, regarding frequently asked questions about the sport pilot certificate from uh, AOPA and uh, another um, article or two regarding that. So check out the show notes if you want to learn more about the light sport certificate instead of uh, trying to get your class three medical. You know what? I, I always found it so interesting that uh, we airline transport pilots need to have a class one, which um, requires 2020 vision or corrected to 2020 and uh, a third class and sports class require 2040 vision as a minimum. Um, 
But it's interesting to me because um, sports pilots and people that fly with a third class physical uh, usually do a lot more visual flying than we do. Um, and we have, you know, for traffic avoidance, we fly obviously in class alpha airspace above 18,000, below 60,000. We have, you know, TCAS and all sorts of things. And we fly instrument approach procedures sometimes down to no visibility landing. So we don't need to see anything out the window. So to me, it was always kind of backwards where we had, we got to have 2020, but the people that actually fly and rely on visual flight rules for, you know, separation and other things. Good point. Only need, only need 2040. So, uh, I was wondering about that, but, uh, Hey, that's what it is. Shall I add myself to the stream? Is that better? Why not? It, it has a, it has all to do with uh, the captain having no excuse for getting his wallet out and f finding some money to pay for the drinks. But that because often is. they say, "Oh no, I'll open the wallet. No, nothing yeah. in there." Well, let me let me help you, Captain. Uh, we'll <laughs> we'll right. give you your wallet. Twenty twenty vision. <laughs> I find I find myself, and this this just started happening. I find myself doing one of these lately. It's like you know. Mm -hmm. like, uh, so I was like, oh. uh, just, just the beginning, Rick. Just the beginning. Oh, poor old Rick. Oh, oh, crying out loud, and I'm starting to, I don't know, I have to turn the lights up all the way up and just like go like this. Or like, I don't, and I'm fighting, fighting going out and getting uh, good glasses. But, I know, yeah. but. By uh, the way, uh, uh, sorry, uh, earlier I just wanted to comment on the picture. This is, of course, uh, the picture on this license is to. Uh, celebrate the very first uh, uh, near miss uh, that occurred in the United States. <laughs> what did they almost hit? Between, between the right flyer and a 737. Uh, it's a little name. Oh, fact. Yeah. yeah. Look yeah, at it was, that. It was, a, it, was a, it was a Dash 200, so it happened a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, right around the time that the right flyer was... Absolutely. Its first I, I, yeah, yeah. There's nothing nothing but flight safety in the United <laughs> States. We love it. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, I, and I, and I did, oh, just what one final thing. Have you noticed the color of his hair? Yeah, bald. <laughs> <laughs> nice one. Sorry you're making fun of you, old chap. At, at least, at least we carry our, our license is a little card instead of a freaking notebook that we have to carry around <laughs> up the uh, a beautiful uh, bound gold embossed notebook yeah you have mm. a piece of plastic yep yeah. uh, we love each other folks we really do <laughs> all right number uh six, Jeff. number six uh do you have this video this is uh from doctor the hardest show i've ever been on i'm trying uh, to keep track of it. where we go it's not that hard come on <laughs> That's what she said. That's the what, grounded what she said. pilot. <laughs> <laughs> this is from the grounded pilot. Why you can't trust gamers to fly an airplane. So we have a little, little video and you're right. He's right. Uh, you really can't trust gamers to fly an airplane. This is interesting. Here we go. At Air Omen, we believe in the journey, not the destination. That taste should be savored. Comfort should be next level. And pilots should be hardcore gamers. That's because they're proven to have superior reflexes and hand-eye coordination. And that means a superior journey for you. So climb aboard and experience a new way to fly. I'm not getting it for me. I'm getting it for you. Transcend humanity with Omen.
Okay. <laughs> right. Uh, let's see. Uh, this ad shows exactly why you can't trust flight simulator pilots to fly your plane. I slowed down this video to see how many mistakes I could find. This is from uh, uh, Dr. The Grounded Pilot. Um, and I slowed it down to find out how many mistakes I could find. And boy, are there plenty. Here's a small portion of my list. And Captain Nick, I will uh, let you point out the obvious. Number one, what a really high altimeter setting. 1,301 millibars. That's closer to the pressure on Titan, Saturn, Saturn's largest moon. <laughs> at Rav- well, <laughs> and I put this little- for the strange colored sky. No, I didn't know. Well, what- no, no, no. It was, it was, this was a submarine. There were, uh, were uh, oh. you know, Below, I did, below I did a little conversion the, there for us. That's uh, uh, it would be uh, inches of mer- mercury, thirty eight point four one. That that's high pressure. Yeah. Uh, how do you get both the loc and approach modes on at the same time in an Airbus? Well, Can you? What is this? Uh, a, 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 a line check? I don't uh, know. <laughs> yes. Let me see a uh, a back course ILS. Oh. So it is possible. I'm guessing. I, I really can't. can't I, I, I imagine that you probably can't. I don't know. Uh, let's see. Number three, what pilot flies around with their windshield wipers on? Now, I I went back and slowed everything One down. in the rain, of course. Well, I never saw I never saw the windshield wipers on. I didn't either. And, no, or either. the left landing light on. I didn't see that either. I don't know. I guess I'm not. Uh, perhaps she's <laughs> well, looking at the switches. Okay. The left landing light, I, I do that very, very often, and I'll tell you why. When you're climbing or descending... So usually, what we do, we'll, we'll turn the we'll turn the lights off at eighteen thousand feet on the way up, and we'll turn the lights back on at eighteen thousand feet on the way down, right? Mm-hmm. But uh, oftentimes, when you're when you're above eighteen thousand feet, that's right around where that freezing layer uh, tends to hang out. And uh, basically, what you do is, if the outside air temperature is from negative forty centigrade and up to uh, 10 um, uh, degrees centigrade on your screen on the on the upper eye cast there in that envelope you have to have your anti-eyes on and if it's nighttime you really can't tell if you're flying in cloud or not and so what you do or what i do is i'll just turn a landing light on and as long as i can see that there's moisture outside and we're within that temperature range i'll put the anti-eyes on so that's yeah one. i, I, I must admit i used to do the same rick i used to yeah. keep them on if I was climbing in cloud until we got to minus 40. And then at minus exactly 40, right. I'd turn the landing lights off. Exactly right. So that's why it's, uh, that's the reason why you do that. Yeah, yeah, but I would imagine that this uh, video, that's probably not the reason why they have the left landing. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think uh, Just, his comments are all entirely appropriate. They, yeah. Yeah. Well, he says um, he he definitely uh, said this is some real cringe worthy footage to tear apart. It is by Absolutely. all our lovely armchair pilots. I definitely won't be flying on that airline. He says. On the bright <laughs> side, I've discovered only a single cured patient of the APG syndrome. It seems being offended by all the audio inserts played by button pushing pilots can be enough to cure you of the APG syndrome naturally, but sadly. If you are as disappointed as I am when Captain Jeff forgets the perfect time to play a specific audio clip as I am, you will have to suffer a bit longer, and we need to secure more funding through the coffee fund to continue our medical research into the pandemic 
we know as APG syndrome and the now associated disease of OB-APG syndrome with origins back to the triad terminal area. That's a bad syndrome as well. Um, yeah. I, that's a, so That's a variant. Let that's me, a variant. In the video, uh, usually in the audio, I'm able to kind of fix a little bit of like when, oh, I should have played that sound effect. <laughs> I, I can kind of adjust things a little bit. I don't always do that, but sometimes I do. But in the video, this is all real time. And t sometimes when you only have one screen, which I'm working with right now, it takes me a while to find my my sound playing app. And then it takes me a while to find where the darn actual sound file is that I want to fly. So I, I, yeah, I have to admit I'm not the best at it, but I'm trying. Anyway, if, if we, we find time, you very if, trying too, Jeff. Yeah. Before the plain tale, let's try to do nine and ten, Jeff. Okay, nine but before ten. I go, Liz... <laughs> Um, I, I need to finish his, uh, feedback, sorry. Sorry. uh, sincerely, uh, Dr. The Grounded Pilot. And he says a note to Captain Jeff and Liz, make sure you have the I'm offended clip ready and any others to try to cure some people. I'm probably playing it at the wrong time, but here we go. What? Why is it not playing? <laughs> I'm offended. There we go. <laughs> Excellent. And by the way, I did notice at one point all the pilots were looking the wrong way. They had to turn their seats around so they could look out the window. Well, that's because they were I playing their that. games. That's how that. Yeah. I thought but, you know, but you know what? I'll, I'll, I'll give them credit because the the seats and the cockpit matched the aircraft. So uh, there's a little bit of attention to detail there. Mm. So, uh, yeah. Mm, very good. Yeah, I'll give them that. Yeah, and I'm thinking if you're like playing your game and then you turn around and see an airplane coming right at you, somebody has screwed up something there. Uh, maybe <laughs> yeah. air traffic control could have done a better job of warning you that you're about to slam well, right they, into something. They're some... probably sitting in the tower playing their game. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah. Um, Liz, what did you say we should do now? Nine and ten, and then it will be plain tail. Uh -huh. All right, Rick nine and ten. Fabulous, probably. Okay, uh, number nine. Uh, this is from Greg, not... Greg Peterson, uh, Outdoor Aircraft Museum. And he sent us a couple of pictures to go along with it. Hello, APG crew and community. I'm a longtime listener and first-time feedbacker. I was visiting the local Outdoor Aircraft Museum at Tinker Air Force Base here in Oklahoma City with my son recently. And I came across this plaque on the grounds, and I knew I had to send it in because I know how much Jeff loves talking about his C-141 days and thought he would appreciate this. Unfortunately, they did not have a C-141 on display, but they did have another aircraft on display that somebody else on the crew has some experience in. And my son Emmett thought that the Phantom was the coolest. Just thought it was time to break the seal and send in some feedback. And if any member of the crew find, finds themselves in Oklahoma City, it's beer and barbecue on me. Ooh, Ooh. sounds good. Wishing you yeah, all clear absolutely. skies and tailwinds. That's, again, Greg, not Greg Peterson. And, uh, oh, I see it. I love it. Jeff, did your um, windshields look like that? No, they didn't look like that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was looking at it going, that's the weirdest looking cockpit windows yeah, I've ever seen. Kind of a modern interpretation of the uh, 141 Starlifter windscreen. Yeah, artistic uh, like a, license. like a Hadley Page Victor. Yeah. Kind of. Yep, yeah, absolutely. Yes, it's that. Yes, very good, Rick. Yes, that's exactly what it reminds me. <laughs> and there's Emmett, and in front of that uh, beautiful fighter we call the Phantom F4 Phantom. Absolutely. Now ours didn't have that big phallic 
thing sticking under the radome. Hmm. But other than that, and the what fact is that? the intakes are a bit small on that one, very similar. Is that some kind of a idea. radar tracking pod thing, or what is that? I think, yeah, I said probably a, a laser designator yeah, or an optical tracking system, uh -huh. I would have thought. But uh, she got bombs under it. Look. Yeah. yeah. Now, how yeah, did you fly with bombs. that big cement thing off to the right below the right intake? That um, seems like it'd be a lot of drag. That, those engines are so powerful. <laughs> yeah. That's why they call it the flying brick. Ah, <laughs> now I understand. <laughs> okay right. and yeah go ahead Rick. no no i was gonna say I, I love that airplane it's just i always thought it was one of my oh, favorite so cool looking it's so yeah. mean yeah, yeah it was very hard looking out of those black windows though <laughs> i know i yeah. know and uh yeah mm. all right number 10 uh gordy in color uh sent us this and he says good ah, news coming out good. of Dubai lately, uh, released as captain. Just wanted to mm -hmm. let you all know. First flight is Malay Maldives on the Max 9. Uh-oh. I would not recommend flying that airplane. It's going to crash. <laughs> <laughs> on the other hand, going to the Maldives makes up for it, man. At least you'll die happy. Yeah. <laughs> True. So there is a, uh, an image that he sent in. 2012 RVAC CPL slash IR. What's RVAC stand for? Not a, Royal which, something? I don't uh, know. I don't know. But it's a, a young Gordy. Well, he's still young. Um, and uh, let's see, 2013, 737-300, first officer. And standing, you know, I, I recommend don't stand that close to an engine. Could suck you in. Mm -hmm. uh, 2015, uh, 737-800 FO. And then finally in 2022, just recently, 737 Command, his four stripes. Looking good, Gordy. Yay! Let's see. Wear them, yeah. wear them smartly, sir. Wear them smartly. Yes. And uh, let's see. There's another photo of him and uh, probably his. Well, oh, that's dangerous. They're There's all four stripers. All four stripers in this photo. Three of them. Yeah. Uh, anytime, folks, you see uh, uh, two or more uh, pilots with four stripes on getting onto the airplane, I would run. Run away. Likewise. Um, RVAC. I don't know if it's correct. Royal Victorian Aero Club. Hmm. There you go. <laughs> Do they yeah. fly 737s? <laughs> I don't uh, think so. Okay. Uh, and then the last one here yeah, is pu putting CPO, on his... CPO instrument rating. Yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Okay. He's putting his stripes on. Putting his stripes on on the, uh, on the stairs truck. Hey, there you go, Jen. There's yeah, a stairs truck good. going up to that airplane there. Yeah. And uh, very nice. Although I must admit, uh, Gordy, brown belt with uh, gray black trousers. I was, mm. was going to say that. I, was, oh, I kind of yeah. like that. That looks like doesn't uh, work for me. Uh, oh, they've all like, got uh, them. I know. It must I be like part of their uniform. uniform. I like yeah. it. Yeah. Air, okay. Air Dubai, I believe. That looks bet, like El Maktoum to me. Uh, brown shoes. Too. Well, I never. Liz yeah. is saying they probably have brown shoes. They yeah, match the belt. Gordy, what is that? Yes. Okay. Very nice. Congratulations. Right. Congratulations, well, I Gordy. Should, I guess we should yeah, say ta-ta to Rick and then okay. go into the plane All right. Very so nice. Liz is telling us that uh, we're close to playing the uh, plane tail. But before we do that, we're going to say goodbye to Miami Rick, because I know you have things to do. And so thank you so much for making so much. the time yes. to, to to do this, Rick. Uh, everybody oh, misses absolutely. having you on the show. And I miss you guys as well. And uh, we'll, uh, we'll do this again now. 
hopefully next week if I'm around. Um, yeah, great to see you, Rick. Good we'll, job, we'll, sir. Thank we'll, you. We'll, we'll talk on internal here about uh, what's going on next week, but uh, really miss you guys. Love you all, and we'll see you next time. We love you too, man. Our best to yes, Kaya and all the great stuff that you're doing with your house. Take care. Yes, sir. All the Take best. Care. Good luck. Bye. Bye-bye. Cheers. All right. And now... Um, bye, Rick. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think he just threw it on the floor. Or was yeah. that an earthquake? I think there was an earthquake. An earthquake, Liz says. It was an earthquake. All right. Uh, let's see. Let me get over here to this. And uh, so now, yes, it is time for the best part of the show, which, of course, everybody knows. It's the old pilot's plane tales in this week's titled... Captain Anderson, The Crash. The old pilot's plain tales. Captain Anderson, The Crash. An air hostess calmly walked through the crashing airliner, telling the passengers, please fasten your seatbelts, keep your seats. Then she returned to the galley near the tail, sat herself down and waited. One of the passengers had seen oil spurting from an engine and on the flight deck, Captain Anderson was nursing his aircraft in. The engine had failed not long after takeoff, following that massive oil leak, and his aircraft didn't have a good reputation for single-engined flying. He was concentrating hard in the back of his mind were thoughts of his pregnant wife back home, less than a month from giving birth to his third son. He had a name in mind. Nicholas, the patron saint of sailors, merchants, archers, repentant thieves, children, pawnbrokers, students and brewers. Well, one out of seven isn't bad. His other two boys, eight and four, were a handful, and they all lived in a little cottage in the Kentish countryside, nestled amongst the hop farms. Pretty soon he would have to find somewhere bigger to bring up his growing family. Perhaps he would build a new house on the outskirts of Guildford, an ancient and blossoming town that took its name from an original Saxon village on a ford across the river way, called the Golden Ford, because of the mass of yellow flowers that grew there and the golden sands that marked the river banks. He had feathered the failing engine and had the other up to full power, but it was hard to maintain altitude as he positioned his aircraft on a long base for runway 26 at Blackbush Airport. He knew that the Viking he flew didn't have a good accident record and he hoped he could nurse it in the last few miles to bring his 36 passengers and crew safely home. Even as World War II came to an end, the Vickers Viking was being designed and the first prototype, built by the Vickers Experimental Department at its wartime Fox Warren dispersal site, first flew in the safe hands of test pilot Mutt Summers at Wisley Airfield in June 1945. 
Summers was one of the most famous test pilots of his era, conducting first test flights on a record 54 new aircraft. He flew early fighters like the Gloucester Gamecock and the Bristol Bulldog, all the way up to fly the first of Britain's nuclear V-bombers, the Vickers Valiant but perhaps his most famous achievement was to be the first to fly the supermarine Spitfire. His nickname, Mutt, came from his habit of peeing on the tail wheels of new aircraft that he flew, claiming that it was dangerous to crash with a full bladder. The Viking was a twin-engined, short-to-medium-range tail-wheeled airliner powered by a pair of Bristol Hercules radial engines, built with 14 cylinders in two rows. It used the same wing and undercarriage as the Wellington bomber, but had a completely new all-metal fuselage. It was short and looked a bit dumpy, somewhat like the DC-3, but 163 would be built and serve with a myriad of airlines around the world, 35 of which were in the UK alone. Military versions, known as the Valletta and Varsity, would serve in the RAF and many other countries' air forces, numbering an additional 426. There was even a Viking powered by a pair of Rolls-Royce Neen turbojets, which flew from London to Paris in 34 minutes, and reached a magnificent 415 miles per hour. Of the 163 civil Vikings built, nearly a third would be written off, several doing exactly what Captain Anderson was attempting that day. A Viking belonging to Don Everall Aviation was departing Heraklion Airport in Greece, when shortly after takeoff, an engine appeared to fail. The aircraft soon lost height and crashed into the sea, killing the three occupants on board. Even closer to home, an Eagle Airways Viking was on a trooping flight from Blackbush to Tripoli, carrying 25 army men, a couple of civilians from the war office, a wife and two children with a crew of five. Shortly after takeoff. The pilot radioed the message. I have a port engine failure. I'm making a left-hand circuit to come in again. As the aircraft turned onto finals less than a mile from the runway, it crashed into a wooded copse on Star Hill and burst into flames. There was only one survivor. An Air India Viking was inbound to Mumbai Airport following an engine failure when it crashed whilst trying to land, all survived. An independent air travel cargo aircraft suffered an engine problem after takeoff from Heathrow and decided to land at Blackbush, but they couldn't maintain height and they crashed into houses, killing all the crew and a mother with her three children on the ground. Even the original prototype crashed during a single-engine performance test, when the live engine failed. The aircraft made a forced landing at Effingham, and everyone survived. There were plenty of other causes for Vikings to crash, 
A number flew into terrain, such as the side of Monte Carlo in Corsica, Monte La Cinta in Sicily, and the Irish Law Mountain in Scotland. Several went down in bad weather, and in the days before auto-landing systems, attempting to land in fog. There were unexplained losses, when aircraft just disappeared into an ocean, but perhaps the most remarkable was the flight of BEA's Viking, Gulf Alpha India Victor Lima, from Northolt to Paris, on the 13th of April, 1950. They were in the cruise over the English Channel, and weaving around some thunderstorms when the aircraft shook to the sound of a huge explosion. The cockpit door flew off its hinges and struck the unfortunate first officer, and when Captain Ian Harvey looked back, he saw carnage in the rear of the aircraft, amongst which lay his hostess, Sue Cramsey, severely injured and bleeding, with one arm almost severed. She was attended to by brave passengers who pulled her to safety away from a gaping hole in the aircraft. The explosion had wrecked the galley and toilet and had left holes in both sides of the Viking's fuselage, one of which was eight feet high and four feet wide. Damage to the control wires that led to the tail made it almost impossible to move the rudder and elevators. A former RAF bomber pilot, Captain Harvey eased his crippled aircraft around and pointed it back towards Northolt, thinking he might have suffered an enormous lightning strike. Controlling his aircraft was far from easy, and he had to overshoot from his first attempt to land, but after a long straight-in approach, he safely brought his passengers home on the second attempt. On investigation, it was discovered that the distorted metal around the explosion area showed that the source had been inside the aircraft, probably a bomb hidden in the toilet waste paper bin. Behind the police patrol entrance to number 6 hangar at North Holt Airport is the Viking airliner Vigilant, damaged by an explosion in mid-channel. At first thought to have been caused by lightning, It's now known that a time bomb, probably made of gelignite, was responsible for the explosion. It injured the Vikings' air hostess, but the 28 passengers were happily brought to safety by pilot Ian Harvey, who flew his plane home despite a wrecked rudder control. Officers from Scotland Yard's security branch then took over, searching for possible clues. Even the fuel pipes and tanks are examined. Suspicion fell onto a French passenger who was allegedly trying to kill himself, but nothing was proven. The 31 other people on board the Viking, 27 passengers and 4 crew, were to be sacrificed as part of his suicide plan. Captain Ian Harvey received the George Medal for his gallantry and extreme coolness in landing the crippled Viking. After a long career, he died in 2004, aged 83. Sue Cramsey, the flight attendant, made a full recovery from her injuries and returned to duty, as did the aircraft, named Vigilant, which was eventually repaired, a testament to its design and inherent strength.
Back aboard Captain Anderson's aircraft, he was configuring the machine for a single-engine landing back at Blackbush. He had reached a critical stage because he was losing altitude faster than was ideal as the single bellowing Bristol Hercules struggled to give enough power to keep the Viking flying at a mere 115 knots. He delayed lowering the undercarriage to the last possible moment, but then, as it appeared to clunk into place, a red warning light flickered, indicating that it wasn't fully locked down. When he looked back up from the warning, trying to assess his options, he realised that time had run out. He was below 400 feet and he didn't have enough power to complete an overshoot. His speed had fallen to only a 100 knots and he could see that he was sinking fast. Full power and boost on his remaining engine wasn't enough to arrest the descent and the aircraft was yawing in response to the asymmetric thrust. As he dropped into some low ground, the runway disappeared from view and he tried to stretch the flight out, but the speed was falling faster now. He knew that there was nothing more his aircraft could give him to prevent a crash. At the last possible moment, he firmly raised the nose to cushion the impact as they struck the earth only yards from the airfield boundary. They hit rising ground and bounced, skidding onto the airfield whilst the undercarriage collapsed and the outer portion of the starboard wing and engine were torn off. Four young ladies aboard from the Bedford Education Office afterwards explained, We didn't know anything was wrong till we felt a bump. There was a cloud of smoke and then a sheet of flame as the crippled aircraft bounced on for another quarter of a mile. An eyewitness in another aircraft said, We were told by radio that the Viking had priority to land. I saw it coming in low on one engine. Then, just before it reached the runway, that engine seemed to cut out. We thought everyone aboard must perish, but when we came back around two and a half minutes later, after a circuit... There were people getting out. It was a miracle. When the wrecked aircraft came grinding to a halt, Captain Anderson and his first officer began their emergency shutdown drills, and in the back, air hostess Beryl Rothwell of Bayswater went to the rear door, flung it open, and announced in matter-of-fact tones, This way, please. That night, the passengers were full of praise for the coolness and skill of Captain Anderson and the air hostess. Mrs Hare of Sevenoaks told how a smiling Miss Rothwell reassured the passengers that there was nothing to worry about. Then, as the plane crashed, she whipped open the door and asked us to get out quickly. Seconds later, the whole wreck was ablaze. Miss Rothwell, two years with the airline, declared, The passengers themselves were the real heroes. They showed no panic. One couple, who were only married on Saturday and on their way to Italy, said, We've lost all our kit. It looks as if the honeymoon will be in Cornwall now. As the newspapers put it, 
Bystanders had waved goodbye as the passengers went on board for a Riviera flight. Minutes later, they were gasping as the Viking plunged to the ground in flames, but their horror turned to cheers, for from the fire-blackened doorway the passengers filed out as calmly as if they were in a bus queue. Only a few of the passengers needed to visit a hospital. One of the worst injuries was that inflicted on Captain Anderson, who broke his arm as he fought with the controls during the impact. Despite his injury, he ensured that everyone had safely evacuated the aircraft before he himself climbed out of the burning airliner. The inquiry noted that the aircraft had first struck the ground with its tail wheel only 135 yards, 123 metres, from the runway in line with the right-hand edge. By the time of ground impact, the undercarriage downlock plungers had fully engaged. They concluded that the accident was the result of the captain allowing the aircraft to stall when making a single-engined approach to land. The contributing factor was distraction of the captain's attention by the flickering of the undercarriage red indicator light during a critical stage of the approach. A few weeks later, with his arms still in plaster, Captain and Mrs Anderson were pleased to announce the arrival of their third son, Nicholas James. Captain Anderson Sr. went on to have a successful career with Airwork Limited, which would, over time, become British United Airways, British Caledonian Airways and British Airways, before he moved overseas to become the Boeing 707 Fleet Manager of Kuwait Airways. In addition to the Viking, he would fly the DC-2, the Bristol Britannia, Vickers VC-10, Boeing 707 and Boeing 747. His youngest son, Nicholas, would continue the family tradition and join the RAF to fly F-4 Phantoms, Hawk T-1s, F-A-18 Hornets and the Panavia F-3 Tornado before, like his father, becoming a civil airline pilot and flying the Airbus A340 and A330 for Virgin Atlantic Airways. But it was many years before he would discover just how close he came to never knowing his father. Wow. That ended kind of yeah. abruptly. Sorry, that was very abrupt. Yeah. <laughs> oh no, that was that was an in, that was an intentional one. Oh, okay. Never knowing his father. Da da. I see. <laughs> this I don't know. There's something about this that sounds familiar to me. There are a lot of um, I don't know coincidental. Uh, yes, name similarities. Yeah, yeah. It's remarkable. Yeah, how these things happen. Yeah, wow, sadly, well, I don't see sadly, it, a, a fascinating aspect of my father's career that I never found out about until, uh, you know, I was really quite a long way on in my flying career, mm -hmm. and I discovered uh, the, the newspaper clippings. And I mentioned it to the old man, and he kind of like, Brushed it off, and he said, "Oh, <laughs> yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah, we, 
the uh, the engineer left um, the cap off the oil tank uh, on that engine. Mm. And, uh, of course, all the oil under pressure spewed out of the tank very quickly. Uh, but uh, that was really all he said about it. Oh, he said he mentioned he broke his arm. So, <laughs> so I, I didn't really, yeah. yeah, I didn't really think much more about it until uh, you know. Then what, and I read the, um, the newspaper article and went, "Wow, that's." Uh, uh, but of course, I, I never really tackled him on it when he was alive, and mm -hmm. I didn't really want to. Yeah, um, but. Uh, it, Sounds like something like he didn't, didn't want to really talk about it that much. Yeah, exactly right. But uh, he, we're coming up to the first anniversary of his passing, so mm. it seemed an appropriate time to bring it up. It, I find it a fascinating story because yeah. those early aircraft, they had such limited single-engine performance. I mean, they could obviously fly on one engine, but Barely. certainly not very well. No, mm -hmm. uh, and it was very easy, as you can tell, when they were straight off to take off for them to have just a little too much weight for the capability of the airplane. So mm -hmm. uh, it, was, it was hardly surprising that he couldn't quite nurse it all the way back to uh, Blackbush, but there you go. It was an interesting story. Rothwell, too. Yeah, I love Beryl Rockwell, the uh, flight attendant and uh, stewardess Rockwell. I'm sorry. Uh, I don't know if she's still alive. I, I, I wouldn't know. She might be. You never know. She, yeah. yeah, very calm, very calm. The the ladies who did those kind of jobs uh, in those days were often um, very well qualified, way overqualified for what they did. Uh, you know, some airlines, they had to be qualified nurses, um, that sort of thing. So, uh, And a lot of them were ladies of very good upbringing because uh, that was it was considered a you know a top notch um, occupation for a, a lady of repute. <laughs> of repute. Of good yes. repute. Um, of good repute. Yes, not ill repute. Yes, exactly. Um, yes. Yeah, you know, and even now in today's times, uh, the flight attendants out there, you'd be amazed at how many of them are very um, uh, well schooled and had had uh, really great careers uh, before they became yeah. air hostesses or stewardesses or flight attendants or whatever you want to call them. Um, well, yeah, I, I use the, the term of the time. They, mm -hmm. they called them all hostesses. Right. Um, but, uh, yeah, you're right. When I joined Virgin, uh, I hadn't done many flights, and uh, one of the cabin crew was leaving. And um, so I, you know, kind of, made the bland assumption that she was perhaps going to get married or something. So uh, so I said, uh, um, you know, what are you going to do after you've uh, left the airline? She said, well, I've been working on my law degree. I'm going to become a barrister. I've flown with flight attendants at Acme that are attorneys and medical professionals, etc. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah, and they often keep their light hidden in, under a bushel. Yeah, uh, they they don't make a big thing about their qualifications or their ability. We we do. We we we're perfectly happy what? to tell everyone how wonderful we are. No, but, uh, what are no, you talking okay. about? <laughs> no, you're not. <laughs> we're, we're typically yeah, not very modest, are we? Uh, at times, yes. After yeah. a few beers, yeah. Excellent story. Thank you for sharing that with us. That was great. Well, thank you. Yeah.
So we've got about uh, um, 40 minutes yes, left till the three, 40 minutes left or so. 40 so minutes left. Crack on. Okay, let's crack oh. on then. We don't have to go the full 40. Nope, that's fine. Uh, but uh, let's see. What would number you suggest seven. we do now, Liz? Let's just keep going with the ones we haven't covered. Seven. Number seven. Number seven. Okay. Uh, this was sent to us uh, from John. He says, hello, APG crew. Being in, in electronics, I'm interested in another podcast called The Radio Mechanic. As I was browsing through content, I found a video that may interest you and your viewers and listeners. It's a rather long video tour of the Spruce Goose and is very interesting. I'm a listener to your podcast, and while not involved in aviation, I've always loved various aircraft and spacecraft. It's fascinating how large this aircraft is and is truly a work of art. Wishing the crew at APG all the best and hope you find this video entertaining. John Zupko. And we're not going to play the entire one. As he mentioned, it's kind of a long video, but we can play a little teaser. So I'm going to add it to the stream. And here we go. It says, the radio mechanic visits the Spruce Goose. Use the right tool for the job, says the radio mechanic. That is not the Spruce Goose's engine. I, I guess he's got a Harley. <laughs> I don't know what he has, but it's not an <laughs> airplane engine. Okay, here we go. Hello, and welcome back. And I apologize for not posting any videos for the last couple of weeks. I've been working Slacker. in Oregon, and there's a possibility at the end of this week, I may be heading back out that direction for another couple of months. And probably won't get a chance okay. to put anything. I should probably up if fast forward to where this starts about the spruce goose, right? Built out of plywood. Uh, payload. I guess he was about to start. <laughs> At the end go. of this week, I may be heading back out that direction for another couple of months, and probably won't get a chance to put anything up if I do. Right. However, while I was out in Oregon, I took the opportunity to go visit the or Oregon. Spruce Goose. And for those of you who don't know what the Spruce Goose is, you probably have been living in a cave. During World War II, when the Germans were sinking virtually everything that we put on the water, the gov U.S. government was trying to figure out some way to get men, supplies, tanks, and so on and so forth into Europe. And Howard Hughes, the billionaire, took on a project to build an aircraft large enough to carry huge payloads. Now, this airplane ended up being a quarter of a million pounds, 250,000 pounds, with a loaded or laden weight of 400,000 pounds. The amazing thing was this whole aircraft was built out of plywood. It was called the Spruce Goose because it rolled off the tongue fairly easily. But in actuality, it was mostly birch. Something like 97% of the aircraft is birch plywood. It carried eight Pratt & Whitney R4360 four-row radial engines of 3,000 horsepower each. That means uh, 24,000 horsepower. The propellers were 17 feet, 2 inches in diameter. And to this day... No airplane has ever exceeded the wingspan of the H-4 Hercules, which is what its official name was. 
the wingspan was 320 feet 11 inches. That's larger than an Airbus 380. That's larger than a 747-8. That's even larger than the AN-225. Uh, that's the Antonov, uh, the Russian heavy lifter. No. Anyway, that's a little bit of a teaser there. And sadly, as we know, the Antonov 225 is no longer with us. Um, yeah, I know. Very sad. Yeah. Very sad. They, there is one that was disassembled. You never know, they may get that one flying. That's true. They so. do have something to work with, that's for sure. So possibly yeah. we'll see another 225 in it the air in the future. Wouldn't it? Yeah. Wouldn't it be awesome? H4. I didn't know that that was the official designation of this uh, the Spruce Goose. And I didn't realize that it was mostly birch. Yeah, I thought it was the birch banana, but uh, obviously <laughs> not. <laughs> How long did it take you to come up with that one? <laughs> About 30 seconds. <laughs> I can tell. <laughs> the birch number, banana. <laughs> number 11. Okay. All right, Liz. I know. Let's get on with it. Uh, number <laughs> number 11 before Nick cracks another joke. Um, oh, dear. This is from Greg, and this is Greg Peterson, our big-ass fan. Uh, here is the article about Delta Airlines, uh, the sister airline of uh, Acme working with SpaceX for Starlink access on their aircraft. Again, this is from Engadget.com. Uh, SpaceX has been working to put Starlink internet on planes for quite some time. Delta Chief Executive Ed Bastian has revealed in an interview that the airline held talks with SpaceX and conducted exploratory tests of Starlink's internet technology for its planes. According to the Wall Street Journal, Bastian declined to divulge specifics about the test, but SpaceX executive Jonathan Hopfeller talked about the company's discussion with several airlines back in mid-2021. Hopfeller said back then that the company was developing a product for aviation and that it's already done some demonstrations for interested parties. Uh, let's see. So let's see. SpaceX chief uh, Elon Musk tweeted in the same period last year that Starlink antenna or 10A for pilots would have to be certified for each aircraft type first. He added that the company is focusing on dishes for 737 and A320 planes because they serve the most number of people. Anyway, uh, you know what's interesting about this is that I was flying, um, I guess it was sometime last year, and I was interested in this particular call sign. This Delta uh, jet was up there doing something and coordinating with aircraft control and had a, a an unusual call sign or number. And, uh, I, uh, the only thing I could tell was that they were doing some kind of, um, uh, internet, um, testing. And I just assumed it was like one of the latest, uh, satellite services that a lot of our jets use, or maybe the GoGo, um, or not our, but, uh, Delta's, um, internet provider, GoGo, um, uh, what do they call that? GoGo wireless, GoGo, whatever. Uh, so our fleet is made up of a couple of different technologies, um, and internet uh, connectivity. But, uh, then I, when I heard about this from Greg, I'm thinking, Oh yeah, now I know what they were doing. They were up there, uh, doing some test flights with the, uh, antenna for the, uh, SpaceX. Uh, oh, brilliant. Uh, talking about it, uh, how have you been getting on with your equipment? Uh, well, working kind okay? of a personal question. <laughs> 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 oh, you mean my that, Starlink equipment? Oh, yes. Uh, yes, well, yes. you know what? Honestly, I have not um used it uh much 
since I returned <laughs> from Kansas because I don't really need to because I have uh, fiber internet here. It's not gigabit fiber, but it's, you know, I, I really don't have a need to put the dish oh, out. I just thought from, you might have played with it to see uh, how reliable it was. Well, we I do about? like playing with my equipment, but. Um, yeah, that's what I heard. Yeah. But honestly, I've been so busy flying trips, singing, and then, you know, just spending very editing little time here at the cabin, editing the show and all that kind of stuff. I just haven't had a lot of time to uh, to do it, but I do fair, I do need to. Enough. But I did notice, uh, speaking of Starlink news, I know this is an aviation podcast, um, not quite an aviation-related thing, but uh, just today, I think, that they announced that this uh, – this portability or this roaming feature that has been working for me and I've talked about on the show a little bit in the past uh, has is now officially um, active or activated for everyone. But this uh, what they're calling portability is now an extra fee. So if you oh. want to operate your dish uh, in the portability mode and it does have restrictions, you'll have to pay an extra $25 per month. So Ooh. It started off at ninety nine a month, and then went up to one ten, and now if you want to use the portability option, which I'm going to be having to use, uh, it'll be one thirty five a month. But I'm still hoping that it'll be just you know it'll be worth the uh, cost of having that capability, especially when I, if and when I get my <laughs> RV, uh, hopefully by yeah. the end of this year or maybe sometime early next year. All right. Well, that's good. Yeah. Um, I haul boxes says singing about your equipment. Is that what <laughs> I do. you've been doing? In the shower. Yeah, yeah I do. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway. All right. Number 12. Number 12. Oh, very uh, funny. Yes, I saw this, Greg. This is from Mr. Peterson again. Oh, yes. Another another note from uh, Greg Peterson. Um, the bus that wanted to be a Boeing. This poor little EasyJet A320 wants to be a Boeing so badly. Look at the registration. And uh, there you go. Now, did you show the big one first? Oh, and you zoomed in, and look at that. Okay, you can see. Yeah, it's hard to see in that one, but uh, everything everything He's is so there close. except for the B. Uh, it says uh, Oscar Echo Dash India November Golf is the uh, registration number on this EasyJet uh, Airbus A three twenty. So close, but not quite a Boeing. Absolutely, yeah. Yes. Cool. I'm um, owing Boeing. <laughs> uh, probably some jokes can be made there about that. Yeah, I, I was I was just be desperately trying to think of one. <laughs> I know, me too. Uh, let's just move on then. Probably safer. Um, Adam, um, Adam Catling, I think, um, sent in this. Good evening, aviatorists. Hmm, never seen that word before. Uh, I've just finished Quite listening. Like it, though. I do too. I've just finished listening to episode 517. Love hearing the feedback from Brad about, uh, or loved hearing the feedback from Brad about the immersion of flight simulators, particularly with VATSIM that Captain Jeff referenced too. I've not touched a simulator since I was 15 years old until that, until that is when Microsoft released their new one a year ago. And I'm hooked. I found myself part of a small community who take immersion one step further in an attempt to ditch the mouse and keyboard altogether. Armed with an affordable laser cutter, a fantastic online community working together from around the world, we've made numerous realistic flight panels that are functional, realistic, and so very, very cheap. We've worked together and open-sourced our efforts to mutually benefit the community 
and have even designed matching circuit boards, totally eliminating the need for any wires. I've attached a few examples, but for an idea, a plug-and-play Airbus MCDU goes for anything between 450 to 1450 pounds, plus the cost of some advanced software. I've managed to create a fully functional Airbus MCDU multi, uh, let's see, display unit, multi-control uh, display con unit. Yeah. Configuration. Uh, that runs on an Arduino program called MobaFlight that's totally free and open source, developed by Sebastian and the amazing community that have come together for only 70 pounds. Wow. That's, that's pretty cheap. So many others from around the globe collaborate through Discord and helping each other create some amazing panels, increasing immersion to the point we've created almost every panel for the Airbus cockpit for about 15 to 40 pounds a panel. We've even made many versions for space saving whilst giving, uh, still giving awesome immersion. I can only take credit for a few of the attached, attached images, but I wanted to share this amazing free resource in case any simmers out there wanted to join us for the ride. Just taking the immersion one small step further and learning some awesome skills along the way. Wishing blue skies and tailwinds or storms and crosswinds as heck, <laughs> it's a simulator. Why not? <laughs> yeah, right. Who cares? I hope uh, Boxes says a good point here. That okay. would do is brilliant. Uh, multifunction uh, control. Multifunction. There we go. Uh, um, we, we missed out the function. Yeah, but that's, I think I said MCDU. It did. Multifunction, control, oh, display. Oh, I see. Multifunction is one word. Gotcha. Control, display. Thank you. Thank you. Um, but that does look very realistic. Yeah. IHAL Boxes uh, says from our live audience, wonder how long it takes before the Chinese are going to be sticking these into their airplanes. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> yeah. Too late. Sure, they've already done oh, that. 70 quid a pop. Yeah, that, yeah. Those look so nice, though. I mean, uh, I, I'm sure while I was reading that, Liz must have been put, putting those oh, slides up. Um, they are very impressive-looking um, panels for not very much money. I wonder if um, if uh, Carlos um, knows about And this is all about the Airbus, but I would imagine they probably make them for the 737 immersion simulator cockpits. Um, I don't know. Very, very I'm not quite cool. sure why you'd need the uh, seatbelt sign. Not either. The rest of it looks great. <laughs> I'm not sure what, what that had to do with yeah, it's something just a in the test cockpit. Run or something. Um, mm. So, but he, do, I don't think he gave us any kind of a link, did he, uh, to how people can mm. Everything contact? Everything is in there, so we could. I guess we could ask him for something. I'll yeah. Uh, something. So, Adam, if you don't mind, um, if people want, uh, I'm sure that people are going to see this especially after uh, seeing the show notes and seeing the pictures, if they're uh, listening to the uh, audio-only uh, version of the show, um, they're probably going to want to figure out how they can get their hands on this uh, kind of kit. So if you could give us some contact information or a way for them to... And I'll, I'll email them too, Jeff. I'll okay, and, and Liz said that she's going to uh, email uh, Adam regarding that in case he doesn't hear this part of the show. Thank you, Liz. Uh, and then if we mm. get that information for you, we'll definitely give it to you because that's uh, that's pretty amazing, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And there are a lot of people out there who just want to get the full experience. If you're going to fly a simulator, they don't really want to have pictures, screens showing the instrumentation. They want the actual instrumentation. Right. Uh, this looks brilliant. 
Yeah. Makes, makes it much, much closer to, you know, actually being in the airplane and in the cockpit and yeah, activating so. things. Yeah. That's cool. I mean, that FCU, which is effectively how we control the autopilot, mm -hmm. looks as, it definitely looks as good as the real thing. It does. It really yeah. does. Um, David Powell, uh, number 14, um, sent us some feedback. Uh, an interesting link to a news article about passenger drones. And this is from ITV.com. Uh, demonstrations begin at Coventry Flying Taxi Hub, which bosses say marks a new age in transport. Uh, bosses for the mini airport describe the move as a starting gun for a new age of transport. Founder Ricky Sandhu described the opening of the site, which hopes to eventually operate flying taxis and delivery drones as a momentous occasion. He said it was ushering in an age of zero emission, low congestion travel between and within cities that will make people healthier, happier, and more connected than ever before. The Coventry demonstration will showcase the future of how people will travel, seamlessly integrating with other modes of transport to create a greener, more connected future. Whilst flying taxis have yet to receive government approval, the port will be holding public demonstrations which aim to showcase what future travel could look like. The drones team from West Midlands Police will also be using the event to hold demonstrations of its latest technology. Uh, in a statement, Inspector Mark Caldwell said it's an exciting time for the development of police use of drones. Drones offer a cost-effective and environmentally way uh, to enhance our force operations. Environmentally what way? I know. There's a, something missing there. Environmentally friendly. friendly. Friendly way. Okay. Yeah, I, I'd go with that. Uh, as we force, as a force, we receive over 2,000 emergency calls a day. So the possibility of using drones to innovate the emergency service sector is endless. Awesome, and uh, I think we were noting uh, before the show that this uh, this port uh, zero emission. What do they call it? Um, hub, flying taxi hub. Kind of looks like a a space saucer that landed. Flying saucer, yeah. Flying saucer. Yeah. Uh, I, I, to be absolutely truthful, uh, I'm not too sure how practical that is because to get up to the airplane, you're going to have to climb up the side of that thing <laughs> or have some kind of lift. And, uh, you know, you can only have one airplane on it at a time, whereas if you just have a piece of open concrete, you can have a bunch of uh, aircraft. But, but it doesn't look I as cool as this. Yeah, yes, no. <laughs> yeah, I think that's the point. <laughs> You've got to get people excited on the uh, possibilities and uh, make it look good. But uh, yeah, there you go. All right. Number 15. Number 15. We have another cartoon. This Ooh, is from sorry. Texas Charlie. Excuse me, Liz. Sorry. Yep. Go ahead. Okay. Go ahead. Uh, Texas Charlie sent us this feedback a cartoon. Um, not sure exactly. Oh, it's, a, of course, our favorite cartoonist gary larson pilots have the button they should never press passengers have the switch <laughs> and of course it says fumbling for his recline button ted unwittingly instigates a disaster and of course you'll have to see this if you're uh look at the show notes to see this but uh, there's a switch there along with all the volumes and channels for your in-flight and entertainment system and light control and flight attendant call button there's one that says wings stay on wings fall off yeah, not a good design. <laughs> Oops. Yeah, oopsie. Um, let's see. Um, 16. Let's, 
do this. We have some audio feedback from someone who has been a uh, listener and participator in our show for quite some time. Passenger Brian has a question for our show. So let's play this audio feedback. Hi, Captain Jeff and team. I have a question for the ex-military folks. Well, the others can comment as well, as I think this is a general question, but it has a military twist. The other day I was in Hawaii. I was sitting in my window seat watching a new ramp person get trained. I could tell he was being trained as there was another person standing next to him, guiding him along the way. The ramp worker with his orange sticks was telling the captain where to go, or should I say, guiding the plane. And then, when the tow bar was disconnected, the supervisor had the trainee stand at attention and salute the plane. Or did he salute the captain? Actually, I'm not sure which is being saluted. Anyway, I guess he didn't do it right the first time as the supervisor made him snap to attention and give a proper salute. My question comes from the fact that I always find it strange when non-military people salute. I've always felt this is something that should be reserved for military. I could be completely wrong here, but it's just a feeling I have. Therefore, what do you guys think about ramp workers saluting you? Should the saluting be left to the military, or am I missing something? Is it totally fine for non-military people to salute others? Just wondering and hope you could share your opinions. Also, if I could, I wanted to give a plug for my show and website, thejourneyisthereward.org. And again, the .org is the important part as .com was taken. It's my quest to fly 3 million paid miles on United Airlines and obtain 1K status for the rest of my life. Our main man, Micah, is my captain, guiding me along the way, helping me document my journeys. As such, I finally have the show listed on Apple Podcast, Spotify, and hopefully soon Google. Therefore, it would be greatly appreciated if the fine listeners of Airline Pilot Guy would have a listen to my show and let me know what they think of my crazy adventure. Emails can be sent to brian at airplanegeeks.com. As always, thank you so much for doing what you do. Remember, be safe and fly safely. This is Pasadena Brian. Brian, Brian, Brian. Shameless plug. All I can say is... Shame on you. Shame on you. Shame on me for playing your shameless plug. <laughs> um, yeah, so if you want to check out Brian and Micah's uh, podcast, um, it'll be in the show notes. And I said, make sure you... Uh, put .org and not not .com. Anyway, the, the question that he asks, um, yes, you're you're not quite right about this. Um, first of all, they are not saluting an inanimate object. They are saluting uh, the captain, commander, or our represent representative. Sometimes they'll be positioned off that it's much easier for the first officer to give the salute and the reason, and, and it does not have to be a military person uh, to give a salute. I don't think salutes are reserved for just military, although that's where it's more commonly seen, right? Nick? Um, mm -hmm. The origin of the salute comes from French knights, um, according to some people anyway, mm -hmm. who uh, would show friendly intentions by raising the visors of their helmets. Um, oh yeah. So like Holy Grail, uh, Monty Python. Yeah, there you go. Um, and uh, um, in other cultures, uh, it could be raising your hat. Uh, so have, putting your hand to your 
a hat or to your head was, you know, considered a salute of, of sorts oh. and uh, a friendly gesture. Uh, so, uh, yeah, mainly in the military, um, but uh, uh, for many, many years, uh, you know, uh, in the 30s, 40s, 50s, men wore hats, and it was very common to see them raise their hats or uh, at least touch the brim when they um, saw a, uh, a lady uh, as a you know a, a form of uh, I'm um, bring that back. greeting. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that that was common amongst civilians. Uh, so it's not necessarily just a military thing. No, I even well, you know, when I'm wearing my pilot cap, a lot of times I'll just kind of touch and sometimes like lift it up slightly, just kind of as a gesture of hello, you know. Um, Absolutely, yes, um, particularly to the ladies. Yeah, that's what we do. Nick, didn't you say also when you used to fly to Japan that they would bow to you yeah. as you were like the ground crew would bow? To Most you certainly, uh, because that's their yeah. um, indication uh, of. Uh, you know, respect of deference. Uh, so, yeah, the the ground crew would do a bow to the aircraft uh, as they completed the last, you know, removing the final pins and unplugging. They they would bow, and as you came onto the airport, um, the security staff would come onto the crew coach, and they would uh, stand at the front and they would uh, look at the captain and. As the captain, I would show my ID, and that would be all that would be required. And then I would receive a very formal bow, pump sometimes a salute, and then they'd walk off again and let us through. So, uh, yeah. But um, th- this habit of the ground crew saluting aircraft is a very American thing. Um, hmm. I don't see it in any other country other than America or didn't. Huh. And you wouldn't have got it in the United Kingdom. You would get a wave, probably. Mm-hmm. And more importantly, they would do the important bit, which is hold up the damn pin, <laughs> which is the last thing they've removed from the aircraft. So that you know that the nose for steering is now uh, unlocked and you're free to taxi. Uh, so uh, that would be the final thing. But uh, you guys tend to do it a bit more formally mm-hmm. over in the States. And it's just a, basically the ground agent saying everything is clear, everything is configured properly as far as we're concerned, and you're free now to taxi on your own power. And, uh, you know, it's an acknowledgement that they're basically, a, it's a, a nonverbal uh, statement of dispatch, safe dispatch, apparently. Yeah. I mean, uh, uh, anyway. Um, and the, uh, what was I going to say? Uh, so uh, it's funny, though, uh, you can always tell. Uh, here in the U.S., where you know a salute is a, a traditional thing, uh, the ground personnel, ramp workers who were probably either currently military or previous military uh, people, because they give the best snappy salutes that uh, you you see. It's pretty amazing. It's a lot of fun to see that. Tim Van um, Ram's got a good yeah. So here. now uh, Tim Van Ram in our live audience says now the cap is worn backwards and the hands are holding up baggy pants. Uh, yeah, uh, and that's why. So now it's very difficult to salute by putting your arm behind your back and trying to touch the cap of your hat. It's almost impossible for me to do. What it. are they touching back there? I don't know what they're touching back there, Liz. But uh, anyway, um, yeah, good question, and uh, it's just a, a way for us to know that everything is is finished on go. the ground, and there and we're good to go. And, and speaking of the um, the pin. 
uh, every airplane I've flown except the McDonnell Douglas products, uh, the uh, DC-9 variants that I've flown and I'm currently flying, uh, there is no pin uh, that you uh, use for the nose wheel steering bypass. It's actually, well, it's like a little lever that they, um, and there is a pin down there. There's a cotter pin that, uh, uh, but when it's disconnected or, um, I mean, connected with the cotter pin, then the uh, nose wheel steering system is deactivated for the pushback. But then once uh, they've disconnected the tug, they'll um, remove that cotter pin and the little thing will be uh, in a, in a fly away position. And, but there's no actual pin with a streamer on it. Um, so you just have to hope that they've properly configured that uh, particular flyaway um, switch. And you'll know right away because as soon as you start trying to uh, steer the airplane and the tiller is not moving, that uh, they didn't. So yeah, you have to it, come it was very much stop. belt and braces on the Airbus that I flew as well because mm-hmm. you had a, um, an indication on the memo panel that uh, the nose steering uh, was available to you or not. Oh, okay. So yeah, we don't have uh, that. As soon as they, as soon as they pulled that pin, mm-hmm. that memo cleared. So ah. you could tell that they had actually done their job. Well, that's you clever. didn't need to see the pin. Yeah. But uh, they, they did it anyway. So it was belt and braces. Yeah. Last, uh, last and more comment. importantly, uh, you needed to see the guy who was clear of the aircraft because the number of uh, safety incidences we've had in the past where the guy's been busily trying to remove the pin from the nose while steering and the captain <laughs> still there. has assumed he's clear and started moving. <laughs> Yeah. Well, you know, you can imagine, uh, you know, a three hundred ton airplane going over your foot is not funny. No. Even though I'm laughing. No, it's not a laughing matter for the person that gets squished. One last comment from iHall Boxes. Oh, iHall Boxes gives us another comment. They gave us the nicest salute right before we jumped the chocks. Yeah. (laughs) Exactly. And sadly, that does happen. And sadly, I see it all the time. You know, this again. The, a lot of the of people, the ramp um, agents do this properly, and they wait until the tug with the tow bar and the other wing walker is well clear of the aircraft before they'll give us the salute and let us know that it's you know clear and you can go off to the runway. Uh, but sometimes, I mean, the tug is like right in front of us, and they're giving us a salute. And I'm going, yeah, I don't think it's clear. Uh, I see it's like right in front of me. Like, yeah, there's no way I can maneuver yep. the airplane and not hit that thing. You know, so I think it's just the, a misunderstanding the, for them. They don't understand what they're really trying to communicate to us. Yeah, having been through so many different handlers, uh, you know, because contracts change year by year. Uh, the ones I always liked were the ones where the because we can't see the tug uh, in in our aircraft. Mm-hmm. It, it's way down under the nose. So the ones I liked was where the tug driver, when he came clear would actually move out in front of the aircraft, about 40, 30, 40 feet in yep. front of the aircraft, so the captain could easily see him and park across uh, your routing, mm-hmm. you know, across the yellow line you're about to drive down. Uh, pardon me, would sit there in your way until everybody else was clear, and then he would finally move out of your way. So yeah. if you tried to taxi with someone still under the aircraft, you'd run into him. Mm-hmm. That's the way to do it. Um, and the yeah. same thing with the L-1011. Um, you know, the, we couldn't see the tug because it was well under behind the, uh, the cockpit area. The nose wheel was like 20-something feet back, I think, from the, from the nose. Um, and, uh, yeah, I remember one time we almost started going uh, before we had received the all-clear salute. And 
we just like all yelled out to the captain, stop. <laughs> like, no, no we're not, it's not time for us to go yet. Um, and the other thing I want to mention regarding tug operations and ramp agents is that it just drives me nuts when I see it. Uh, when I see one of the wing walkers or whatever stand behind the tug and I'm thinking, we have had so many instances of people getting flattened. I mean, you know, literally flattened by these big giant tugs backing up because the tug driver didn't know they were right um, behind him. And yeah. I, I, I always tell my first officer, look at that. I said, there's no way that you'll ever see me standing behind a tug like that because, no, no. you know, that's so easy to be distracted yeah. or lose track of where all your ramp people are Absolutely. and run over them. And I don't know, this person there has are, a lot more trust than I have. Yeah, there are so many dangers around the aircraft. You don't realize. When you're doing a walk around, you often meet these uh, baggage trains. You know, there might mm -hmm. be 10 little uh, carts all connected up with a tug at the front. We're bringing the baggage to the aircraft, and it's just sitting there, and it's in your way. So you step uh, between two of these carriages, to get get on and carry on, do you walk around? Which you should never do because no. you never know. You're always one of these to. things. Is, yeah, exactly. Is going to set off, and if you're halfway across when it does it, you're you're going to get taken out. Yeah, uh, and uh, you know it's just not funny. There's just so many dangerous things. I do remember uh, in uh, you know uh, it was Newark actually, um, a, a young lad in one of these tractors came belting up to my aircraft and like did a screeching um handbrake turn and ground skidded and ground to a halt beside the aircraft and climbed it clambered out to go do something and i and i <laughs> walked up to him and i i have to say i very rarely do this sort of thing but i tore a strip off him and i wanted to see a supervisor and i tore a strip off the supervisor and I said, you know, this is a, a $150 million aircraft, and you've arrived in front of it. You know, do you know how easy it is just to lose control and smack into it and how much that's going to cost me, the company, your company, the insurers, everything? And I, I got nothing but stares and glares as if, what am I doing? You know, just the captain of my airplane trying to protect it, um, telling these guys off. They were really offended. But, you know, sometimes you've just got to tell them how it is and, yeah. you know, tell them to behave. <laughs> so true. I, I don't know what good it did. I doubt yeah, it, it did. probably did some good, I would imagine. They'll probably remember it. Yeah. Jeff, we've got a couple more, but I think we should uh, wipe it up, wind it up now. Okay. Quickly. I think I agree with you, Liz. Um, I think we're getting to that point now. We could do a few more, but I think uh, we're, we're getting awfully close to uh, three hours in. She just wants to preserve a couple, I'm sure. I do. She, uh, she does. She says, I do. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, but, uh, and I, you know, it's, it's easier for me editing and it's easier for people to consume something under three hours. So, uh, unless I keep on very much so, yes. yapping here, uh, we're going to be they've, over three. They've had enough of us, I'm yeah. sure. So, um, yeah, uh, unfortunately, Steph wasn't able to join us today because of that thing. What do they call that uh, job that she has? And uh, so we mm. missed you, Steph, uh, but, and we uh, missed uh, Nick Camacho, Macho Man. Uh, he's um, on a business trip, uh, uh, do uh, another job thing. 
that he does, and he couldn't make it with us. So uh, uh, we're sorry that they weren't able to. What is this strange word you keep using? I don't know. It's just uh, (laughs) I'm not really sure I understand it. Uh, But anyway, uh, so we're glad that uh, we had you, Captain Nick, and Miami Rick, and uh, Liz, and uh, we appreciate everybody that is here with us in our live chat room. You're part of our crew, too. And, uh, of course, all of you listening out there, either live or uh, uh, playback. And uh, we're going to point you now to our website, AirlinePilotGuy.com. Oh, before we do that, though, we're going to tell you that if you want to send us feedback, feedback at AirlinePilotGuy.com if you want to use email. And if you want to attach- send lots in now because we covered a lot. We need some more. We need to fill the hoppers up. So Uh-oh. send it in. Now oh, you've dear. done it, Liz. They're going to, oh, uh, they're going to just- Make the it floodgates related. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, we have a website, airlinepilotguy.com, where there are a lot of uh, information about uh, the crew and the community and the community calendar. I said community calendar and uh, merchandise <laughs> yes, <I> know, <laughs> and uh, so much more. So please check out airlinepilotguy.com. And we're also on social media or what I like to call the social meds. Captain Nick, would you do the honors? Please? Yes, we most certainly are. And I'm frequently, uh, as is Liz, on Facebook, uh, answering your questions uh, and forwarding information about the show. And you can find us on Facebook at uh, Airline Pilot Guy, or one word. And um, also on Twitter, uh, where our handle is at APG Crew. Um, Steph and I uh, tend to be on Instagram as well, although generally I just post the artwork. Uh, so you get a, a quick preview of the artwork, uh, and Steph does a lot of her own stuff, but uh, that's APG Crew, a bit like uh, Twitter. There we go. And we're also on uh, Slack, I'm part of our Slack team. And, uh, well, I think Hillel's filling up the bathtub this time, I think. Hello? I think he's swimming, filling up a swimming pool. Hello? Can, can you do the slack thing for us? Jeff, would you lose on my back again? Um, No, not not right now. I'm kind of busy <laughs> still doing the show. Um, Can you come over here and... and what? Talcum powder? Can you come over here? Jeff, if I could walk over there, I wouldn't need the talcum powder. Okay. <laughs> Well, seems like he's uh, experiencing an issue, so I guess we're going to have to play the recording of him telling us all about Slack again. APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share news and ideas, we suggest episode and plain tales topics, we plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K. Sierra Lima Alpha Charlie Kilo at airlinepilotguy.com or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel spelled Hotel India 11 Echo 1 and see you in Slack. Okay, th- sorry to bother you today, uh, Hillel. Woohoo! Free soap! Okay. <laughs> um, yeah. Free what? Free soap. Oh, my God. I should play that one when I'm in a hotel room, shouldn't I? Yeah. 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 Um, Anywho, uh, thanks, Hillel, for telling us all about Slack, uh, a place that I don't get to as much as I should. I should be better about that. But anyway, 
Uh, we'd also like to thank our producer, Liz, yay, for all the hard work that she does behind the scenes. Up, My while, pleasure. Always and, a pleasure. And while we're doing the show, as I think you all know, uh, that she is constantly giving me direction uh, amongst other things whether you want it or not yeah, and uh <laughs> but no she's a godsend and thank you so much liz uh, we really appreciate you're welcome you. and welcome. uh until next time oh and thanks again to uh, those who are in our live audience you really help us out as well and until next time wishing you all clear skies and limited visibility and tailwinds take care god bless and happy sink of the mile <laughs> Bye, everybody. <laughs> cheers everybody Good day. I used to be such a good, good pilot. Till I started APG I opened doors for little old ladies I helped them to their seats Airline pilot guy I fly America Airline pilot guy He can't land in heavy fall I got no friends cause I'm always flying I just don't have the time But I can land this old plane I can land it just fine Airline, how guy I fly away